Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What do you like listen to? Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee of a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host. I'll need them. And as always, I'm joined by two hot music criticism studs who are gagging to fill your ears with their sexy, sexy pop chat. First up, it's the man like Taylor Pox. Hey up, Taylor. Good day. And next up is my good friend, Simon Price. Hello, Simon. Hello, Al. I'm bursting with sexy, sexy pop chat today, let me tell you. I barely contain it. Before we go any further, need to apologise to all the pop craze youngsters for leaving you hanging for so long after the Christmas splurge. I also need to apologise for the really shitty edit on the last episode because uh, I was I was dead set on putting it out on Christmas Eve. And the day before, uh, my, my edit file completely corrupted and I had to do the whole thing from fucking scratch overnight. Tapping away like a little fucking elf. Yeah, I mean, in the circumstances, you did a remarkable job. Uh, and it sounded catchy. I sounded like I was in a fucking biscuit tin, so... No, you're a master of the fast edit, just like, uh, was it Ridley Scott that had to reshoot huge, you know, reels and reels of his latest film because of, uh, um, you know, your man, uh, Kevin Spacey, and had to replace him with Christopher Plummer. That's Not right. that anything like that has happened with no. dark music, I hasten to add, you know. Uh, the repeat of the 1973 Christmas special, they, they, they cut the fucking thing to ribbons, didn't they? On the BBC? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, BBC Four. I mean, obviously they didn't play Leader of the Gang by Gary Glitter. No. Uh, but they... Uh... They cut the suite, uh, presumably on account of Steve Priest's uh, swastika armband, which is weird considering that's previously been shown with the swastika armband blurred out in fucking Germany. So, you know... When the German TV station repeated it, it was there. It was only the right. BBC that blurred out the swastika. Oh, really? Yeah. So the German TV broadcast that, despite the fact that it broke the law. Well, yeah. Well, it's the sweet outlaws to the last. Yeah. I'm actually quite outraged by by that decision from the BBC. Mm. Um, I mean, and in a way, it's easy for me to say because I'm not Jewish. No. The, the meaning of the swastika... Steve Priest wasn't, you know, advocating the final solution. Neither, neither was he saying it's actually an ancient symbol for the sun. <laughs> he wasn't doing that. Either. Yeah, he, he no. wasn't going for the for the cooler shaker cop out either. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, people who who were born more recently won't won't realise what the swastika was like in the seventh. It was everywhere. It was Sw- like you know, drawn on your school, you know, exercise books to, to show that you learned how to do it. But yeah. in every kind of boys comic like you know uh, warlord or something like that yeah um and oh, you'd see about was... 30 swastikas a week wouldn't you absolutely and um i think we thought the nazis were funny and yeah. and it's it's 
and, and maybe we were thinking it was funny from a, a position of privilege because uh, it was a pure dad bait uh, mission. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I think there was a slightly different spirit to it when people like Sid Vicious and Susie Sue wore it. I think that was to kind of, um, you know, uh, annoy the parent generation and basically say, we are badass, we're, the, we're your worst nightmare, yeah. we're the worst thing you can possibly imagine. But, but, but the thing was, Hell's Angels were doing that in the early 70s. You know, even in the late were. 60s, that yeah. the swastika was being worn for that thing it is it's a weird one and i think it's a, a, a shame i can certainly see how you know uh i wouldn't be thrilled about a band now walking around with swastikas on for all kinds of reasons because the climate has changed well really but, it was um, worse then the, because people's dads had been killed and things you know what i mean it's like, it's like I, I wouldn't... also people's dads people's dads had beaten them people's dads had they, they, they were enjoying their comfortable retirement having kicked the ass of the nazis so they were enjoying, like you know, the, the Mel Brooks generation, if you like. Yeah, well, this is it. The the one area which it's uh, it acceptable to wear a swastika is comedy. Well, Steve Priest, I guess, was walking the line between rock music and comedy at this point. I wouldn't personally stick up for anybody's right to wear a swastika for a laugh, but at the same time, if somebody did 50 years ago, you don't have to cut the whole fucking clip out, you know? No, nah, no, nah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you you can't if you if you're trying to airbrush the past, then you're uh, you're acting like them. Yeah. Just it's almost <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this episode, Pop Crazy Youngsters, takes us all the way back to April the 29th, 1976, on the very cusp of the hottest summer of our lifetimes. Of course, when you mention 1976 in musical things, you know, people always go on about the first stirrings of punk and all that kind of stuff. But I think, as we're going to see in this episode, you're not going to see any of that at all, but you are going to see uh, a lot of uh, disco. Yeah, I mean, punk didn't really get going in the UK until July of 1976, when the Ramones played at the Roundhouse and all of the kind of um, London uh, would-be punk bands were there. And that was kind of year zero moment. So still a couple of months away from even that happening, never mind people bringing records out. The nice thing about the disco in this as well is that it's early disco from before it was standardised. So um, even the stuff that's uh, made on a conveyor Mm. belt um, still sounds pretty fresh. Um, But it's weird, isn't it? Is this the time of the great in-between? It's like the perineum of the 70s. Like if you, 74, 75, 76, they're like the problem years. If you look at the charts, most of it is sort of UK schlager and like just random imports and stuff. It's like the big acts have left or they're, uh, they're too big for petty concerns like making pop records. So whoever's left in the room has to improvise. And it's like, hey, so we're the pop stars now and hope that nobody notices the difference. And... <laughs> So you get these charts that are really varied yeah. and it should be intriguing, but it kind of isn't. Like you get you get some weird hits that there wouldn't have been room for in a busier year. But for every one of those, there's 15 nightclub singers and 25 60s leftovers. And you end up, as as usually happens in lean periods for pop singles, you have to turn to black American groups if you want something that's popular and good because they just never stopped um mm. 
and it's yeah there's a lot of great british hits from this time but there's never so many that it feels like a party you know what yeah. i mean but do keep on listening everybody yeah <laughs> i mean we are one <laughs> we are one year removed from 1975 which is you know generally accepted as the worst year of chart music uh of, definitely of the 70s if not ever um are we seeing an improvement yeah things are picking up um yeah i mean although i noticed from the charts here that uh abba are at number two and brotherhood of man at number one in this oh spoiler alert backwards world yeah you can cut that for a spoiler if you want um (laughs) no the thing with them the thing with spoiler alerts is right um top of the pops in this era spoiled itself because the very top of the show yeah. You've got the countdown. You've got the usual kind of Jim Bowen style. Here's what you could have won, um, yeah. which kind of destroys the suspense of the show. And um, so we see that we missed out on things like Sussa Single Bed by Fox and yeah. Jungle Rock by Hank Mizell, yeah. which would have been amazing. Yeah, I noticed yeah. Jungle Rock is at number three and we don't get it, presumably yeah. because they did it the week before. I know Pan's people and friends did a sort of, safari suited interpretation oh yes that must have been the week before um the story is that they couldn't get hank mizell himself because nobody knew where he was because nobody had seen him for about 15 years and then eventually they found him and shook him awake and flew him over to europe for some (laughs) craggy pas you know uh, this is a song. By, t- by which time it was too late yeah. to go on top of the pops. Do Jungle Rock. Well, this is a song from one year. Do Jungle Rock. <laughs> so, what was in the news this week? Wow. Tony Benn announces that the UK has produced 30% more North Sea oil than expected. Two retired Secret Service agents revealed that the US ambassador's mansion in Moscow was exposed to intense levels of radiation in the late 1950s when Richard Nixon visited there. Jimmy Carter has just won the Pennsylvania Democratic primary. Wembley Stadium have announced that they're recruiting a private army of ex-army NCOs to patrol the ground during this Saturday's FA Cup final. And Liverpool have just beaten FC Bruges 3-2 in the first leg of the UEFA Cup final. But the big news this week is that four Cornish women have volunteered to strip naked and act as bait for a sea serpent which has been sighted in Falmouth Bay. (laughs) Amazing. On the cover of the NME this week, Buffy St. Marie. On the cover of TV Times, Huey Green dressed as a schoolboy. Was that bait for a sea serpent as well? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On the inside, he's dressed as a black and white minstrel. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Different times. The number one LP in the UK is the soundtrack to Rock Follies. Over in America, the number one single is Disco Lady by Johnny Taylor. And the number one LP is Wings at the Speed of Sound. So, me boys, what were we doing in April 1976? Do tell me all. Well, uh, we've done this period in my life before-ish, because we did 1975. But I was eight years old, living at 15 Park Crescent in Barrie. And that's the house, and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but just quickly... I believe to be haunted by Victorian orphans, mm. and where um, the ceiling, house. 
Yes, the ceiling fell in on me in my sleep, covering me in maggots. Maggots mm. for whom I made uh, a Lego submarine. Um, uh. I was attending Romley Junior School down the road, and my spare time mainly involved riding a purple rally budgie over makeshift Ooh. Evil Knievel-style ramps in, in the yep. lane behind the house. And I do remember the long summer of 76, vividly. Yeah. Uh, growing up by the seaside, I remember going down the beach, and there was a... Um, an infestation, a swarm of ladybirds, and yeah, there were so oh, many yes. that they were floating yes. on the. Su- I remember being in the water, just seeing ladybirds floating on the surface, which is a bizarre thing. Um, I mean, I, I remember there were, uh, you know, water cuts. You had to basically there was maybe one hour a day you were allowed to turn the taps on. You'd fill the bath and fill loads of gallon bottles, and you'd live off that. And I remember um, there was a, a, a parade through Barry, the, the carnival thing, carnival procession, and um, I got roped into being on it because my mum was in the local Amdram group and the, the theme of the float was the um uh it, it was the wizard of oz and i had to be the cowardly lion and this is on one of the one of the hottest this is like july or something one of the hottest days of the year and i i had this full fur lion suit and um a rubber lion head mask covered in fur as well and halfway along the main shopping street i passed out on this lorry oh, and, I, my... <laughs> and i had to be revived with orange squash so that basically oh. that's that's what 76 means to me ladybirds water shortages and being the ukip logo yes i was i was basically yeah blt or the uh, yeah taylor what can you remember of this, <laughs> this well, wonderful time obviously obviously i don't have lots of memories of april 1976 as i was still three when this oh. so i basically remember about two minutes of 1976 but in tiny flashes of two seconds each right. dotted through the entire year so the rest of it may as well never have happened yeah. complete waste of time <laughs> i may as well have stayed in bed <laughs> what flashes can you remember ladybirds yeah vocal backing the yes <laughs> no i i you know, just i i never knew who they were do you know who they are the ladybirds <laughs> Yeah. Oh well, because we know, all know you about. You sit tight, Taylor, and maybe we'll find out who the ladybirds are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. personally, I was two days away from my eighth birthday, so that was more important than this episode of Top of the Pops. Even though I do remember watching it, uh, and I was really looking forward to the FA Cup final on Saturday between Man United and Southampton because, due to my friends on my street all being Man United fans. I was toying with the idea of crossing the floor from QBR to Man United. Um, and, you know, thank fuck they lost. I supported uh, Southampton that day. I loved it. Well it done. Well done. Yeah, yeah. As I should have done. But no, I was talked into it by my mates. And I remember having this little party and all my mates came round and we watched Man United lose. And I got so upset and angry at myself that I'd uh, I'd back this fucking dead horse that I distinctly remember pulling my shorts off at the end and uh, putting them over <laughs> my head so I could cry and be angry without anybody else noticing. Is that is that your way of expressing anger and sadness these days as well? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I don't think anybody noticed. Nobody even noticed me at all with my uh, with my shorts on my head. It's weird um, how, how these things stick with you. I can still remember loads of players from that Southampton team, yeah, like yeah. Jim McCallyog, Peter Rodriguez, and stuff like that. And yeah. Bobby Stokes, Mick Shannon. Well, God, it was yeah. FA Cup final in the 70s. It was all yeah. encompassing. It was That was your day, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you talk to the youth nowadays and try to explain them that once upon a time, the FA Cup final was massively important. They just... And I just hated Man United. So, so um, 
uh, in any given match, uh, you know, any situation, I would support whoever the most sort of direct threat to Man United was. So for about two months, I was a Southampton fan. <laughs> but yeah, FA Cup final means nothing now, uh, apart from when Forrest beat Arsenal in the third round. Hello, David. <laughs> The other, um, the other thing about this time was I just played my first and only gig uh, in in a band uh, in the reading corner at uh, at junior school. Uh, me and my mates decided to form a band, and that involved uh, cutting out and painting cardboard guitars and miming to show Waddy Waddy and Rubet's records in the reading corner, even though it was a few years past. I insisted on having the star-shaped guitar that they had in the Glitter Band. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the only thing I remember about that concert was, I remember uh, John Rosen, uh, who was the who was the front man, so he, he just had a, uh, a a toilet roll holder with a bit of string hanging off the end, <laughs> uh, turning around and saying, come on, let's rock and roll. And I immediately dropped down on the floor uh, on my knees and leant back and just peeled off this amazing guitar solo and everybody said it was dead good when I did that. So, yeah. How did the audience react when it came out that you were miming? Oh, no, they knew. Because, they, you know, they, they, I think everyone was aware that, that miming was was what you did. So, you know, it, I, I was just being a, being a proper rock and roll band. Uh. Yeah, and then we all went off and played football and, you know, that was it. That was it for the band. You know, there was nowhere else we could go. We thought we'd go out at the top. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One has just broadcast Pebble Mill at One, Finger Bobs, The 607080 Show, Play School, Barber Popper, Jack Anore, Blue Peter, John Craven's News Round, Boss Cat, no, fuck that, it's Top Cat, Nationwide, and has just finished an episode of Tomorrow's World, which has examined magnetic floats unveiled the newest invalid car and has had a major rethink of the thimble. Wow. BBC Two <laughs> has run the Open University, Play School, the Open University again, and has just finished the health show where Terry Wogan counts the calories in certain foods and Miriam Stoppard has coated her teeth yellow in an attempt to remove plaque. ITV has screened schools programmes, Mr Trimble, Money Wise spelling out the basics of tax evasion, Mavis Nicholson interviewing someone in Good Afternoon, then it's Racing from Newmarket, General Hospital, Thunderbirds, University Challenge, then David Hunter is questioned by the police in Crossroads, and they're currently halfway through the $6 million man, where Steve Austin helps a scientist and his son defect from the USSR by running dead fast and jumping dead high. I love the $6 million man. I had yeah. one of the toy ones where um, you look through his eye and it actually yeah. makes things look further away. Yes. And some, somehow that's meant to be good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. we, we've talked about the doll before. I mean, the other thing we didn't mention was that, um, he, you know, he had a foreskin for an arm, didn't he? He did have a foreskin for an arm, which, what was inside? It's always some, some mechanical panels, Bionics, wasn't it? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It's time to go in hard on April of 1976. You know the drill. We may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Hello and welcome to Top of the Pops.
Your host for this episode is Tony Blackburn. At this point, he's working the 9 to 11 weekday slot on Radio 1. And when BBC4 started broadcasting repeats of Top of the Pops in April of 2011, he wrote the following piece for the Daily Mail. I quote... 76 is exactly the right year to begin this musical trip down memory lane. Oh, good phrase. Because the show seemed to capture all the excitement, joyousness and positive energy that pop music generated, as well as the enjoyable silliness. What was the secret of its colossal appeal? Chiefly, it was lack of pretension, because Top of the Pops never took itself too seriously. The emphasis was always on enjoyment and giving a good time to people at home or watching live in the studio. The mood of excitement was helped by the determination of the producers to keep the show fresh and new. We also had to obey rules. No act was to appear on consecutive shows apart from the one with the number one single, nor was there any room for a performer who was sliding down the charts or whose single was outside the top 40. That's bollocks for starters. Yeah, hand hand going to chin Mm. there, Tony. The novelty value was further enhanced by the emphasis on fashion. It might seem absurd now, in a more cynical age, but in the mid-70s, viewers from around the country tuned in to see what the young crowd in London were wearing. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. we all, I remember sitting there in Nottingham and going, oh, look, everyone's wearing brown flares again. <laughs> he is kind of starting to show his age, it has to be said. Yeah, I've, I've just finished uh, reading his autobiography, actually, Poptastic. Yeah. You you get the sense that Blackburn's politics are a bit Daily Mail, let's say. But apart from that, mm-hmm. um, he, he seems really likable, I think. And um, yeah, you mentioned the slot on Radio 1 that he, he was doing at this time. Of course, a few years earlier, he'd been booted off the breakfast show and replaced by his nemesis, yeah. Noel Edmonds. And yeah. um, so he's now doing this kind of mid-morning show. But this would have been the same time that he was secretly shagging a woman called Margot in a Kensington yes. hotel who was yeah. the wife of one of his neighbours. Meanwhile, Blackburn's wife, yeah. the actress Tessa Wyatt, was secretly shagging Margot's husband in a rented cottage down the road from their home. Messy. Oh. Yeah, so after the show... And this is before Richard O'Sullivan. It is before Richard O'Sullivan. So after Good the show... Lord. we can The 70s, eh? We, we can assume Tony's off to Kensington straight after this. And the, 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 Wouldn't the, it be great if he was shagging Margot out of the good <laughs> life? Well, who knows? I mean, he got through a few... The stuff about his sex life yeah. in the book is amazing, just for the 70s language. So, for example, he refers to having a clinch with someone, stuff like that. Mm. And, and there's there's a story about spending the night with someone who's blatantly Barbara Windsor and um, being yes. being unable to get it up. So that um, yeah. to this day, whenever Barbara Windsor sees him at a, a social function, she gives him a little wave, but she lets her middle finger kind of droop down. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, he just... Terrible. He got huh? off lightly. Um, he's lucky he didn't get uh, killed in a gangland slaying. Yeah. <laughs> there is that, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I, he, everybody always made fun of him. He was always the butt of so many jokes. But I, I just think he comes over as fairly likeable to me. I don't know about you guys. Mm. He, well, yeah, you know, we, we, we've discussed this many a time and oft. Yeah, Tony Blackburn, he's, uh, he's a, he's a likeable knob, I think. Yeah. Uh, unless you're Barbara Windsor, of course. <laughs> Taylor, last time we uh, spoke on chart music, uh, Blackburn was there with his uh, with with Nemesis Noel. Um, you know, three we're, we're, we're three years on 
uh, from that. And he, you know, he is kind of just getting on a bit. Yeah, and he doesn't really contribute much. I mean, uh, his his usual kind of terrible, barely a joke jokes are not much in evidence. Um, I mean, he keeps the no. he keeps the fake smile up, but it, yeah, and also he's. As with a lot of the presenters from this era, he seems to be quarantined for the first half of the show. Um, and it's like occasionally yeah. he's standing next to the audience and the rest of the time he's in some weird place on his own. And I'd love to know what that was, if those mm. were pre-recorded links or if he was just, you know, in a corner. Yeah, with Arnold. So uh, the chart rundown, as as Simon's pointed out, it is spoiler alert time. And, you know, once again, we get... We get some very interesting photos. I mean, I, I think the the ones that I noticed were uh, the Sutherland brothers and Quiver. Uh, the overexposed pic makes them look a bit like a slapheads convention. Yeah, it looks a bit Prince William nowadays esque, doesn't it? Oh, he shaved a lot off today, hasn't he? Yeah, well, no, he's 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 just gone for a Jeffrey Fairbrother answer. Oh yeah, fair point. Shave yeah. the fucking old lot off, William. Well, Prince William is is the only man I've ever seen who's. Uh, gone from having a, a thin comb over to a shaved head and looks worse as a result. Yes. Normally it's like, ah, oh, shave that off, you'll look 10 years younger. And he, he did, and now he looks yeah. horrific. Yeah, well, he needs to do the lot. People used to really fancy him. Yeah. I remember girls in the 90s just going crazy for him. Yeah, Britney Spears. <laughs> do you remember? Britney Spears said she had a crush yeah. on Prince William. So he should have struck while the iron was hot. The other photos I noticed were um, that there's a late 60s uh, picture of the Beatles where they all look absolutely fucked off with each other <laughs> and can't even be bothered to look at each other anymore. Apart from Ringo, who's uh, staring at John a bit uh, a bit mopily. In a way, um, seeing the Beatles in that chart just kind of emphasises what Taylor was saying earlier about, you know, the big players have left the stage. and But they occasionally appear in this kind of ghostly form when one of their singles has been re-released or something. And, and it, it well, just puts everything else in There's a lot of re-releases at this time, weren't there? There were, yeah. Yeah, and of course, we've got Sheer Elegance, which is the most unapposite band name ever. <laughs> I love Fuck. that. They look awful, don't they? <laughs> Salvation in 1970, Slick worked as a covers band in a Glasgow club when they recruited a 19-year-old guitarist called Jim Err, who reversed his name to avoid a clash with a bassist, also called Jim. In 1974, Midge was promoted up to lead singer, the band was renamed Slick, and they hooked up with the songwriters Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, who had written shang lang and Saturday Night for the Bay City Rollers, as well as Congratulations and Puppet on a String for Cliff Richard and Sandy Shaw. In 1975, Midge was approached by a London band who were looking for a lead singer, but he turned them down, and said band 
the Sex Pistols had to make do with Johnny Rotten instead. After signing to Polydor in early 1975, their debut single, The Boogiest Band in Town, flopped. But after being picked up by Bell Records and an image change from dog shit glam to old school baseball shirts, their next single, Forever and Ever, got to number one for one week in February of this year. This is the follow-up written by Martin and Coulter. It's just been released. It's not in the chart yet and it comes in the wake of them being voted best new band of the year by Readers of the Sun. And oh, if anyone was ever right about anything, it was Readers of the Sun in the 70s. Right, kids? (laughs) I mean, before we get stuck into Slick, um, we've got to say, Tony, you lying bastard. No axe. In the outside the top forty, ever getting on top of the pops, indeed. Yeah, I mean, there's more than one in this episode. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, as there is in most episodes. Yeah. Where did this get to in the charts in the end? Do you know? I didn't look it up. I will tell you later on. Because it's terrible. It's uh, for a start. the The first minute of it is monk rock, <laughs> uh, and monk rock is notoriously hard to pull off, right? It's harder than it sounds because it's really easy to do. Um, but to make it sound convincing, yeah, much much trickier. And then it slides straight into like a really poor version of Pilot. Like, yes, you know, Ger- German Wings Pilot. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's oh, really horrible. And when, when people look back at 1975 and 76, so they say, this is why punk had to happen. A lot of the time they don't really know what they're talking about because they're going Mm. on a sort of false, simplified version of pop history, which is wrong in loads of ways. But when you watch Slick, you realise that punk did have to happen so that bands like this would have something to copy, like a a ready-made musical map, because it's completely obvious that uh, if they'd come out in 1977, they'd have been punks. And if they'd come out in 1978, they'd have been... Uh, new wave prior to this they were glam and so on they're one of those nondescript bands who are too professional to do anything accidentally interesting uh too serious to do anything fun but too too uninspired to come up with anything new uh Mm. and they're in this sort of quiet period for white band pop and they have got they're just completely directionless so they just bolt a load of stuff together there's a bit of bubble gum and a bit of Roxy music, and it it doesn't work. And punk set all those people free uh, to be unoriginal with impunity. And, you know, it's rather a painless and forgettable punk tune than this, you know. Or maybe they might even have been jolted into making one acceptable record, like uh, like The Pinkies, or one of those sort of you yeah. know, new wave and post-punk groups that were sort of terrible. But, you know, you play fast enough and, you know, pinch a tune from someone and, you you know, you've got a halfway acceptable record. But this is fucking horrible. It is, isn't it? I mean, as a follow-up to number one, it's piss poor and it just drags on for fucking ages, doesn't it? I mean, as soon as they go into the, into the next chorus, you just think, oh, fucking hell, yeah. not another one. I mean, um, the way it starts could not be more portentous and pompous and pretentious, could it? Um, Because, um, Mm. and the way it's presented is kind of interesting as well. Uh, The camera zoomed in on one hand on this old F-hole guitar strumming and this ominous chant of amen going on. And um, that that whole first bit is apparently lifted from 
Concierto de Aranjuez by Joaquin Rodrigo, which um, was a hit only yeah. only two months earlier, Jeff Love Orchestra. And then Top of the Pops do that thing that they, oh, they were very man. fond of at this time, which is that weird kind of fly-eye effect with the camera. Uh, of, you've got the sort of image yeah. in the centre, then like lots of satellite images revolving around it. And then, then Midge looms up looking like a sort of pinched, vitamin-deprived James Dean in his red jacket and his quiff. And I, I can't do any better than mm. Mum Rock. I tell you, that's amazing. But but they are a kind of gothic <laughs> pop, basic rollers. And um, this is exactly, this song yeah. is exactly the same formula as their previous single, Forever and Ever, which is much better, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm quite fascinated yeah. by the times in pop history when, when people do that. They have a big hit. And they just think, right, well, we'll do exactly that again. Like um, famously... Uh, um, Carl Douglas, Kung Fu Fighting, followed by Dance the Kung Fu. Yeah, um, and it's, yeah. it's it's a phenomenon I'm really, really interested in. Um, but this, the weird thing is, this is divorce pop, which and it's coming from 23 year olds. Seems a bit premature, but then people yeah. did live their lives much more fast in those days. And then there's after all that kind of <laughs> you know ominous build up, there's that jaunty knees up bit in the song, and and the audience yes. seems to be quite into that bit. I think, but. Never, yeah. never mind the song. It just fuck it out of relief yeah. more than anything else. Never mind the song, though. The only the only um, Scottish contribution to popular culture that any civilised people care about that's called Requiem um, is that bit in the Limmy show where um, Limmy prank calls various small children and growls, Requiem, Requiem, down the phone at them with all kinds of sinister made-up Latin. Taylor, mid-jaws in this, isn't he? Yeah, I know. It's it, We meet again. The thing is... Like you look at Slick in this clip, and their image is obviously you know USA winners, and they didn't seem to realise that if they'd turned up in America looking like that, <laughs> all sort of awkward in these brand new spotless baseball jerseys and sort of camp fifties things, trying to be cool, they'd just be blown off the stage by gales of laughter. It's like to Americans, this would look like. Um, you know all those sort of tuppenny, apeny sixties British invasion copyist groups yes, of America, the, the beef eaters, yeah, and the 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 Buckinghams and the the yes. Chumley Smythes, and the, <laughs> the rocking Shakespeare's with like bold <laughs> wigs and knee britches. <laughs> it just looked like one of those. Yeah. They're fucking horrible. I would, I've no idea who would like this. I can't imagine who you'd have to be to really like this and just to go yeah. out and spend money on it. Um, this sort of, you got a bit of monkery and this dead-eyed schlager and this sort of, yeah, this like arrangement of uh, Concerto de Aranjuez, which is not quite up there with Gil Evans' arrangement, it has to be no. said. And uh, all these bits with Midge trying to look pained and enigmatic and solemn and emotional. It's oh, The other thing it's, to say about this, um, I don't know if you guys noticed it, is that in the background, we see a woman wandering around in a massive Victorian bonnet, who who we're about to meet, of course, which is is just terrible yes. stage management. It was just kind of just yeah. disarray and chaos going on in the studio at this time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing that, that that's really strange about this is that you know we we're, we're kind of used to the pattern of of top of the pops, as particularly around this time, and it is it always is first song bang something fast something um by an uh, usually by a new band uh, uh you know something that just gets the show off to a flying start and with this you know not only are they doing um 
a band who are following up a fucking number one. Uh, it's also just slow as fuck. And it's just, it's just like, you, you, you just end up going, well, surely this, this episode's like uh, halfway over by now. <laughs> who else is going to be on this? Yeah. It, and I think they thought it was striking. I think they thought mm. it was ear catching. And also, yeah. it's coming off the back yeah, of a number it's... one hit. So, just just on previous form, exactly. they would have had reason to think, "Oh well, the audience are going to be into this." But clearly, they weren't. When you look at the chart position, no. So the following week, Requiem entered the charts at number forty-five. But a couple of weeks later, Midjour was injured in a car accident, and the band was unable to promote the single on TV and had to scrap their tour. See, this is it, right? Real James Dean in his real quiff and his real red jacket died in a car crash. Midjewer just yeah. gets injured. <laughs> the single eventually got as high as number 24, but they never troubled the charts again, releasing five singles on the bounce that failed to chart. In the wake of punk, the band changed their name to PVC2 in 1977 and put out one flop single before the band split up. Midjour would go on to join the Rich Kids with Glenn Matlock and two other members joined the Skids. Look there, and a number called Requiem. That's going to be a smash hit. Look at this silly hat. And it's sandy, isn't it? Yeah. Who gave that to you? I think that's fantastic. And this is fantastic as well. From Paul Nicholas. Reggae just like it used to be. Oh, well, my brother can boogie. My sister can rock. But we keep it in the family. We all agree. We love that reggae like it used to be. Blackburn, standing next to a woman wearing a hat that makes her head look like it's being devoured by a giant popper, asks, where did you get that hat? She says something I couldn't make out, but Tony says it's fantastic and introduces something else that he also thinks is fantastic. (laughs) Reggae like it used to be by Paul Nicholas. Born Paul Buzel-Link in Peterborough in 1944, Paul Nicholas was the son of a retired MI6 agent who became the lead singer of Paul Dean and the Dreamers in 1960 before being poached by Screaming Lord Such for his band. In 1966, he was signed up by Robert Stigwood, who changed his name to Oscar and gave him songs written by Pete Townsend and a then-unknown David Bowie, both of which flopped. By the late 60s, he became involved in musicals, starring in the first West End production of Hair, becoming the original Jesus Christ superstar and starring as Danny Zucco in the original West End production of Grease alongside Elaine Page. After playing David Essex's rival, Knee Tremble Johnny in Stardust and treating Roger Daltrey like shit as Cousin Kevin in Tommy, he linked up once more with Stigwood and recommenced a solo career. And this is the first single, a plea for a return of good old-fashioned reggae before it was culturally appropriated by Jamaicans. And it's up (laughs) this week from number 36 to number 29. Oh, release the dogs. (laughs) <laughs> it's you know it's it's interesting that he did play david essex's rival in stardust because paul nicholas yes is the destitute man's david essex isn't he yes. obviously 
Um, yes. But you've listed all the things that you did before this point. It's actually quite impressive. I heard him on the yeah. Danny Baker show a few months ago, and I didn't know all this stuff that he'd done before. And um, another thing he, he had a hand in was getting the Rocky Horror Show off the ground in a roundabout sort of way. Yes. He's he done all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. And I and fast forward to the 80s, I have to admit, I had a soft spot for Just Good Friends, a sitcom. But his, his 70s pop career is absolutely wretched, isn't it? I mean, first of all, what, what does he mean, reggae like it used to be? I mean, reggae well, yes. was... Reggae was more or less brand new at this point. It had only been around since 1968. Before that, mm. it would have been called Star or Rocksteady. So um, are we meant to believe yeah. that Paul Nicholas was a suede head in a Ben Sherman in 1969 doing the Moonstomp, yeah. the Nanny Goat by Larry and Alvin, yes. or you know, uh, on the original Studio One vinyl? I mean, what what is it that he thinks? What is it that he thinks reggae has lost by 1976? that he wants to get back to is what I don't get. Because um, the, the day after this episode was broadcast, right, Rasta Man Vibration by Bob Marley and the Whalers came out. So mm. I'm wondering, did, did someone send Paul Nicholas an early promo copy and he heard yeah. the, the highly Selassie-inspired anti-racist lyrics of war and thought, nah, reggae, yeah. reggae's gone a bit too far now and you know, yeah. some, something needed to be done. And, and he, he wears... Um, this clockwork orange style bowler hat and twirls a cane and does jazz hands and all that. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's just it's vile. I'm sorry. I've, I've gone on too much. Taylor well, should I go, like, go on. Sound like Morrissey. F- fake reggae is vile. <laughs> In you come Taylor. Yeah. It, the, every time I see Paul Nicholas, what I always think is, what is he so confident <laughs> about? Yeah. What he, he thinks he's tip top, right? <laughs> There's not a flicker of self doubt. Or even self-awareness. Um, oh, when you've been Jesus, man, how can you not be? <laughs> I think it's because he's pure showbiz, right? Uh, mm. And he's a showbiz kid, and this is his thing. He's grinning and winking, uh, even right to the end of a bad matinee. You know, it, he's this—he's <laughs> this irrepressible song and dance cunt who can't stop performing, like uh, like a shark can't stop swimming. <laughs> He's always mm. on, you know, but <laughs> yes. it's but it's good for the confidence that because when you actually meet those people, they're always really self-assured, presumably because they don't think about human things. You know, they've mm. got they've got life down like a like a well-rehearsed routine, you know, like a tap dance or something. They've just they've got it down. Um, and this particular kind of cockney country or or you know mockney really because most of these people are from places <laughs> mockney like, Monterey. yeah well most of these people when you look at it are from places like peterborough and kettering yeah you know what i mean uh, but it's like basically david essex did it and was charismatic and likable and after that people thought that any twinkly eyed jack the lad twat would just win everyone over and it's not true because these people are generally loathsome and the only other one who seems like a genuinely good bloke is Carl Howman, right? You would right. be quite happy to go out for a pint with Carl Howman, but mm. all every other one of these people is a massive wanker. And even when they're in something good, like Nicholas Ball in Hazel, right? Some of which is quite good. They make it harder to digest, not easier. And really, the mystery is why David Essex was likable. But I think that's a mystery for the ages. If we understood the secret of David Essex's likability we'd all be rich men it's like a, it's an indefinable 
inexplicable magic. It's like pop music's answer to the wings of the hummingbird mm. or a, mm. a rain of frogs. Mm. Um, but Paul Nicholas, no. And it also, it's he's he's singing live on this, right? And yeah. It's it's an actor's voice, right? He's not. It's not a singer's voice. It's an actor's voice. It's like he's doing a show. What song. kind of musical would yeah. have a plot where the the lead decides that, that what needs to happen is reggae like it used to be? <laughs> yeah, I you know, know what I mean. You can't imagine him doing it. It'd be great if he did it in Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, he went on to be in the film of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. Ooh, band, of course, he did. He, he was the, what, the role he was born to play. It's like mm. his his sort of smarmy, uh, showbiz, uh, cokey cheesiness is uh, uh, just tailor made for that for that fucking film. I think I think mm. you've nailed it, Taylor, by by using the word showbiz um, more than once there because that's what this is. It's not even pop, right? And I think what what this performance tells us, um, as much as the episode tells us, really, is that pop in 1976 is no longer a direct evolution of rock and roll but it's a form of variety. It's it's an adjunct to the light entertainment industry at this point. By the way, I, I mentioned uh, bad stage management earlier. I think we actually see the stage manager at the end of this. There's there's this balding ginger man in a purple shirt lurking at the back and looking anxious. Yes. <laughs> yeah, what worried yeah. that Paul Nicholas is going to whip the kids <laughs> up into a state of anarchy. Yes. yes. <laughs> I was thinking about this. Why... Is he particularly so awful, right? Why does he make your blood boil when you see him on screen? Um, and I think it's the colossal insincerity, right, which you don't always get from these sort of people. But with him, you do. And when you put that immense insincerity with the smugness, it makes him seem untrustworthy and mm. sort of vaguely contemptuous, like he's smirking at you. And he seems like he'd be really manipulative if you knew him. Like, you wouldn't want him around, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, in ever-decreasing circles, uh, <laughs> Paul in ever-decreasing circles, Peter Egan's character. And it's hard mm. to tell whether he's meant to be a total wanker or a, a flawed good guy because the performance mm. is kind of slimy and charmless and the ambiguity in the script is lost a bit and you just want Richard Bryars to wipe the smirk off his face you know yeah sex symbol with a Prince William comb (laughs) over in a pastel lemon cardigan with grey slacks you know um and it's like this with Paul Nicholas it's like you get the impression that he's being sold as a charmer um with maybe a a a sort of a, a dark sexy uh evil side you know but it doesn't come across. It's you just uh, you just wouldn't want him around. You wouldn't want him to be anywhere that you were. You know, I, I, every time I hear this song and see this performance, I just picture a, a flat in Notting Hill with a load of rasters in it, just <laughs> staring at the telly, just going, "What the f- <laughs> fuck is he going on about?" Because it, it it's not reggae, is it? It's 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 more calypso, isn't it? That's what he's going on about. And he's basically performing as a minstrel, isn't he? It's a minstrel performance. Yes, yes, a, a, a white and blonde minstrel. I mean, he's he's not blacked up, but apart from that, yeah, yeah, yeah. fuck. Oh, can you imagine? I'm sure that you know backstage that was discussed. Like, shall I black up yeah. for this? You can reggae Beethoven. 
<laughs> that's the one bit of the song that really gets on my tits because they go, you can reggae Beethoven, and then you hear the opening bars. Yeah, it of, just goes, um, da 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 da. <laughs> that's done. <laughs> Oh, and he, he he mimes it with his walking stick, doesn't he? Yeah, with no with no reggae rhythm behind it at all. Yeah. You know, it's like okay, if you can reggae Beethoven, do it, do it now, Paul. Do well, it they, now in front of us. Show us. All it is is four notes. They could at least have put them on the offbeat. You know, at what least I mean? Jeff yeah. Lynne of the Electric Light Orchestra yeah. rocked up a bit of Beethoven. You know, and made an effort. Yeah. And you, you 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 can actually reggae Beethoven because there are you know there are videos of YouTube of reggae versions of Beethoven songs, but you won't want to because they sound fucking cat shit. Yeah, it's all. I'm just surprised that uh, nobody in Jamaica did a cover of this. It would have been hilarious. Oh, it would have been <laughs> amazing. <laughs> they used to it? do reggae covers of fucking anything. You know what yeah. I mean? You know that the. But they should have done it in like in like a real white English person's accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, should, they should do it. They should do it as a Wurzel song. Yeah. Folk, that would folk music a like it folk, used to it? be. Yeah. But it, you know, you know, there's that reggae version of "Hello Mother, Hello Father, Here I Am in Camp Granada." Uh, just any old shit. They do. <laughs> just get a good rhythm going, and it didn't matter what the song was. Yeah. I, they, yeah. It could have been a surprise hit. Hmm. By the way, going back to the David Essex thing, um, I read between the lines, you get the impression that Paul Nicholas hates David mm. Essex, right? Um, I, I think this came over in the Danny Baker show when he was on there, that any mention of David Essex, and you could just sense the, the atmosphere, the temperature in the studio just plummeting to zero. You know, he doesn't like being compared to him at all to this day. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I'm trying to think of was what would the modern day equivalent be? It would be James Corden doing a song called Old Time Grime or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> the following week, reggae like it used to be jumped up six places to number 23 and would get as high as number 17. The follow-up, Dancing with the Captain, would get to number eight in November of this year and he'd have one more top ten hit with Grandma's Party in January of 1977 before fucking over Neil Diamond in The Jazz Singer pissing Jan Francis about in Just Good Friends and squatting with Sue Pollard on Two Up, <laughs> Two Down. <laughs> it always sounds like a terrible euphemism, dancing with the captain. So does squatting with Sue Pollard, for that matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the sound of Paul Nicholas there, straight in at number 29. That's a really good sound. Fellas, we have for you now the delightful Pans people. They're going to dance to Andrew True Connection, straight in at 17, and more, more, more. Tony points out correctly that Paul Nicholas is causing a tribulation on Jar Jar business. Fucking hell, when Tony Blackburn slags you off for not being Itel, you, you've been towed, haven't you? <laughs> it would have been great if he'd have just gone, Paul Nicholas. <laughs> In this link, right? I, I don't know if you're going to mention it. In this link, Tony Blackburn is manspreading like a bastard, isn't he? He's got, he he's got one knee up in beige, beige trousers 
which is so tight that we can read his mm. intentions later on yes. that evening with Margot. Probably. And then he tells the dads to hold on tight to their tees as it's time for Pan's people as they dance to More, More, More by Andrea True Connection. What he actually says is, uh, fellas, we have for you now the delightful Pan's people, which is a bit unfair on lesbians, really, isn't it? Yes, very much so. <laughs> it's just being excluded as usual. Well, there weren't no lesbians in 1976. No. It was it was too hot for lesbianism. <laughs> Born Andrea Truden in Nashville in 1943, Andrea True moved to New York in the early 60s, became a club singer and landed a few bit parts in films, including The Way We Were. In the late 60s, however, she started to dabble in pornography and by the mid-70s had been in over 50 grot films. In 1975, she was invited by an American real estate company to shoot some adverts in Jamaica, but after the American government fell out with the country after the election of Michael Mandler, she was ordered to give up her fee or spend it all in Jamaica. So she decided to invest it in a demo of a song she'd been working on, More, More, More. After being picked up by Buddha Records, it got to number four in America and it soared up this week from number 29 to number 17. And it's an early appearance of Pan's People, presumably because there isn't any footage of Andrea True that they could show on BBC One at 7.40pm. <laughs> by the way, the uh, there's another part of this story that, it, that when she was in Jamaica, uh, yeah, she couldn't take the money out of the country the other thing was that the music to this is written by a bloke called Greg Diamond, who worked with uh, Luther Vandross and uh, Joe Bryath and people like that. Yeah. Pe- people like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that, that lot. sort. Yeah. Um, well, he was having an affair with Andrea True at the time. Uh, uh, and he was also um, heavily into drugs. And uh, he owed quite a lot of money to a dealer, which was apparently part of the motivation for uh, getting this record out. He's really good, actually. There's a, tra- a track by him called Hot Butterfly um, from 1978, I think it was, sort of it's a really laid-back mm. funk track. Um, maybe Andrea True was the hot butterfly he's singing about. I don't know. Obvious question. Have, have you ever have you seen any of her work? Not knowingly. I, I tend not to go for the vintage stuff myself, though. Uh, well, I don't really enjoy watching any of that 70s stuff. It's just uh, so grotty. Fannies like monkeys' faces. <laughs> I mean, as Neil would say, you wouldn't want a sandwich from any of the people in uh, in 1970s grot. Yeah, no, catering um, on the set was, I mean, you know, like if it was a bowl of peanuts and it was halfway down, you wouldn't really want it to stick your fingers in that. It, no, the no. Is, I love those 70s porn films, but they're not in any way erotic. The, no, no, The no. idea of using them for the purpose for which they're intended is, uh, yeah. I, I can't even imagine it. But they're great to watch because... Um, they're great to watch as documentaries, you know. Yeah, yeah. Especially the New to... York ones, the the ones in LA, not so much because we've all seen, you know, uh, California in the seventies. We've all seen far too much of it. But the ones shot in New York, um, you really do get to see the inside of brownstones and the, you know, the yeah. back end of Times Square and stuff. And it's uh, they're extremely atmospheric, but yeah, not not 
very sexy. Ace yeah. was this club in the 90s called the Frat Shack on around Old Street. And on the top floor, they'd show all these films. You just lob out on the settee. And, and I remember um, going there one night and everyone's lobbed out on the settees watching some old school grot. And I go and get a round of drinks and I come back and everyone's gone. And I just thought, where, where the fuck is everyone? And then I looked up and they've got a, a, a film of... Uh, of 1970s transgender surgery. <laughs> oh. Was yeah, this just thought, part oh, of the okay. film? I get it now. Kind of a Ludovico effect, like in Clockwork Orange, trying to sort of like put you off it. Because they used to put some weird things in those films. Yeah, they really did. It was because um, they would show in, you know, movie theatres and stuff like that. There was a, th- uh, a bit of a feeling that you had to cater to all tastes. Uh, within one film, you know, because there wasn't that thing if you'd go to the rack uh, and choose the specialist film that you uh, that suited your tastes. They felt like that to cater for everyone. So you watch these films, and about fifty percent of the scenes are, are just sex, and then there'll be like the most horrific shit. There'll be like a, a rape scene and a, a, a water sports and. You know, some like really heavy S and M stuff, and they'll be, and it's all in the same fucking yeah. film. Um, and it's yeah, it's a bit uh, a bit uneven tone. Yeah, I remember the first first porn film I ever watched. I went round my mate's house, and he says, "Oh, I've got some got some grot in," and uh, he didn't know what it was, and he just put it in. And, and the first thing that came up was a an Australian film called Piss and Champagne. And the opening credits were basically the words piss and champagne on some made out of fuzzy felt on a fuzzy felt board and and an empty champagne glass. And the next thing you know, this arc of piss just comes in and fills up the glass and it spills over and it's like, oh, okay, this is what you got to do then, is it? I think I was about 13 or something like that. Uh, Yes, you've got to be with a load of Australians, then you've got to piss on each other. They're great. That's a, just a regular Friday night. In yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that episode of Neighbours. But um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, this could have been the defining moment, though, of 70s crumpetry, right? Pan's yes, people really have could to have dance been, yeah. to a cash-in record by a porn star yeah. uh, with lyrics about being in a porn film. This could have been the most brilliantly confusing tangle of total wrongness and total rightness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's something of a non-event, though, isn't it? It is, you know yes. I mean? There were not going to have been a lot of dads with the TV Times on their laps while this was on. Would this have been known about? That she was a... The BBC? That she was a porn star? I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of people would have just heard well, the name you, and just... Uh, you think the news of the world would have had something they, to say about yeah, it? Yeah, maybe, they? but they probably wouldn't have announced it on Radio 1. Oh, here's a song by the porn actor. Yeah. And, Sensational. Yeah. thing is, I think uh, it was common knowledge that uh, she was a porn star, but it, this is almost, but not quite, the only example of a porn star crossing over and becoming successful in another entertainment field. Because this was the last days of porno chic, right? This was uh, yeah. before the cold winds started blowing through that particular industry. She yeah. didn't have to yeah. hide her past uh, or even hint at it. She could reference it directly, and people would think it was delightfully mm. exotic rather than some kind of moral curse, you know. Um, yeah. So this is what I mean by saying it's a cash-in record. Um, but it's great, um, and this is how we rolled in the days before auto-tune. You just had to like it or lump it. 
Um, it's not just that she can't <laughs> sing, she can't time the words properly. It's all over the place. Um, and by the end of yeah. the song, it sounds like she's out of breath as well. But it doesn't <laughs> matter because the only way in which it matters yeah. is that the sort of seductive come on of the lyrics is slightly undermined by the incompetent singing, right? It's like someone winking at you and then spilling a glass of Prosecco into their lap. <laughs> but, it's, but it doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's great because it's, uh, aside from being a good, solid, early disco record, um, it's just beautifully evocative of that sort of business-first sleaziness of the time. You know what I mean? Uh, but it, there's no reason why it should be as good as it is, but it is. Uh, I mean, I've got loads of great thrown together slightly amateurish disco records and it is an easy genre uh, in which to be a bluffer because as soon as you put the basic elements together you've got something that already sounds quite good um, but I think the reason this stands out is that it's too early for it to be generic um, it, the arrangement is much busier than on a lot of disco records there's more going on um, the beat is a bit less overwhelming which gives it a sort of a slightly different kind of charm. I mean, post Saturday Night Fever, this this wouldn't have been half as good. Mm. Yeah, I mean this this is the kind of song that uh, Bevin Abigail's party would put on <laughs> when she wanted to rev Lawrence up. Totally. Have you heard the original Jamaican version of this? By the way, no, it's, I don't no. know if it was ever released, but it's knocking around um, because it was remixed for the American market. Um, the original. Jamaican mix is not such a good pop record, but it's worth hearing. It's, uh, I mean, predictably enough, the bass is louder and there's more echo on it, uh, and her voice is a bit lower in the mix. And there's a lot more space in the sound, which works uh, really well on the instrumental break, where it all sort of opens up beautifully, you know. But ultimately, it's not as good because, in the end, a track like this needs to be buffed and polished because it's built to be slick and slinky. And it isn't really anything else. So it has to go all out for that. Um, and I tried listening to some of her other stuff to see if it was any good, you know. Like her two later LPs, White Witch and War Machine. Um, wow. Yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not very... This is, this is as good as it gets with Andrea True, I'm afraid. Uh, but Pan's people, I mean, they are... They're yeah. essentially dancing in in a Hawaiian prisoner of war camp, aren't they? Yeah. Now, what's going on? I mean, I, I wondered about that. Are these costumes left over from some kind of Hawaiian skit on the two Ronnies the previous Must week or been, something? Because yeah. it, it seems to have no connection to the to the song. And they're, they're running around in a bamboo cage, looking simultaneously frightened but excited. Yeah. Well, that, it's because the cage isn't very good, is it? So, like, oh, we're trapped, but look, we can walk through there yeah. if we want to. So let's have a dance. The thing is, this show is Pan's People's last appearance. This is this is mm. the last Top yes. of the Pops on which Pan's People appeared. And when you hear... Do we know if they knew that, or was it sprung on them afterwards? We'll talk about uh, that later. Oh, but you okay. See, like, you'd think, well, they're doing this kind of explicitly sexy record. Maybe they could go out with a bang. Um, they sort of don't, but then you realise they're just they're just holding their fire. They're going to do this later. Um, I'll tell you what, relatively few... You know, there's a load of uh, missing Top of the Pops from the mid-70s, but uh, there's very few missing Pan's People clips because... Yeah, funny that, eh? 
because uh, a few years back somebody found a videotape of loads of their mid-70s routines, just the Pans People routines, uh, that had been taped off the telly by a vicar. (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, more, more, more dropped one place to number 18, but then rocketed up to number five, its highest position. Maybe that's when the News of the World said what what she was up to. Mm. The follow-up. NY, You Got Me Dancing, failed to chart in the UK, but she got to number 34 in March of 1978 with What's Your Name, What's Your Number. After having surgery on her vocal cords in the late 70s, her singing career was over and she became a psychic reader and drug counsellor. Wow. Dying in New York in 2011. What a life, though. Sometimes been a member of the Raffia. And that's another call. More, more, more from Andrea True Connection. And right now we have the most fantastic sound for you from the Electric Light Orchestra. It's called Night Rider. I remember somewhere in the rain, the faces of the passers by, staring faces broken blinds. Blackburn makes a shit joke about Pan's people being former members of the Raffia before introducing us to a most fantastic sound, Night Rider by ELO. We've covered ELO in chart music number five, so let's just say that this is the third single from their 1975 LP, Face the Music, and the follow-up to Evil Woman, which got to number 10 in January of this year and was their biggest hit to date. Straight away, right, I've got to take issue with Taylor here because um, I was listening <laughs> to the Christmas 1973 episode of Chart Music and Taylor mm-hmm. described Roy Wood as the thinking man's Jeff Lynn. Now, hang on a minute, oh. right? Hang on a minute. I'm a man. <laughs> scrap, I have thoughts. And scrap. I absolutely love Jeff Lynn. I genuinely think he's a genius. Um, this is one of Yellow's less remembered songs, let's be honest. Um, so follow-up to Evil Woman, and uh, also the track directly after Evil Woman on the Face the Music album. So it's quite odd that it failed to chart, not even... It didn't even make the top, top 75, even after being on top of the pops. Um, so to be fair, it has got album track written all over it. It's not a great song. Um, it's actually about being in a touring band. Jeff Lynn had previously been in a band called Night Riders and being lonely and miserable on the road and all that stuff. Um I mean, I'll admit this performance hasn't got much that's remarkable either, except that um, snaggletoothed bassist Kelly Grucker gets a line. And and it's a rare sighting of Jeff Lynn without sunglasses as well. Um, yes. Yeah, and he needs to yeah. put them back um, on fast wrong. because it's, his weak, tired, <laughs> yeah. baggy eyes are not attractive. He looks like a yeah. mole tossed onto an operating table. <laughs> But even so, yeah. there's... Well, well, we're seeing Jeff Lynne without his sunglasses. He's like seeing Midjor without his oh, moustache. Yeah. And, and it's like it's like seeing Sooty with a hard-on, <laughs> to be honest. But... It's just not... It's not right. There's something about the yellow sound, um, even on a subpar song like this, that I just want to swim through. The way the, way the strings are arranged and recorded by... It's, it's Louis Clark um, and uh, Richard Pandy, the keyboardist as well, arranging all that stuff. 
it's like blue amber and I just want to get trapped in it. It's just a really lovely sound, even when the song's a bit a bit crap. So that's my take. And I yeah, I just I just got a rep for ELO and for Jeff Lynn. I think he's a genius and uh, how dare Taylor say that anybody is the thinking man's Jeff Lynn. That's it. Over to you. Yeah. Taylor. I can't really rise to this fight because the thing is I do like ELO. I just don't love them. But they're good, you know. Uh, I mean, this is no Mr. Blue Sky, but it's actually one of my favourite ELO singles because it's a bit weird uh, and it's much too fiddly and stop-start to be a big hit and there's no hook, uh, but it's enjoyable because it's unpredictable and there's a sort of depth to the sound as well as a nice surface, right? Um, the way I... Uh, the problem I was have with the ELO is if you're going to make your sound that smooth and full you have to give it a bit of depth too otherwise it can sort of tire your ears out um and while i don't object to elo the sheer glare that comes off their records um can sometimes be a bit much like listening to an arc light but um mm. i rather like this one so uh it's yeah we can't have a big scrap about it no, <laughs> but I do. I mean, Damn. I just I prefer the tracks like this where they they sound like they're up with the aeroplanes to the ones where they're knee deep in Banks's bitter. That's Banks's the. I mean, Banks's bitter as in the West Midlands brewery, not the fatuous ruiner of brick walls. Um, but it's although it is actually probably another. It's probably time I had another go at listening properly to ELO because whenever there's a hugely popular group who aren't clearly just terrible shit loved by idiots for stupid reasons but i'm not that into them i try and give them another go every few years because i assume that i'm wrong and at some point the penny will drop you know and sometimes you just have to have reached a certain point in your life mm. you know uh like you know with steely dan uh and suddenly you've got something to discover you know, and also I was always slightly put off by the fact that um, they're a Birmingham group, and I sort of I've said this before in the same way that uh, a lot of Scousers at one point would react against the Beatles and be a bit sort of you know oh, it's not about the bit. Um, I always felt this when I was young felt this urge to sort of dislike the local heroes like you know ELO and Jasper Carrot and stuff. It's like. <laughs> Although it's it, I I always speaking of Birmingham groups, I always think it's a shame that so few people really exploited the Birmingham accent as singers, right? The way that Northern singers exploit the open vowels in the Northern accent, right? Or London singers use the Cockney thing, right? The the whining edge of a pure West Midlands accent can be really useful to a singer, and I think Aussie used it definitely. Um, but beyond that, the only other group I can think of who really did something with it were the Sea Urchins, who were a sort of obscure Birmingham 60s revivalist group from the 80s, who nonetheless managed to do something really individual um, in the course of reviving the 60s. Not even Noddy Holder? With this Sorry. Noddy Holder, I don't know. He, uh, I don't know, he sounds kind of more Americanized, really? you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing enough. Like the sea urchins bloke has got this flat whine 
where he shifts the notes off the beat and it's very and if you listen to their best record solace it's got a sort of california dreaming style answering backing vocal so you've got two of them and it's like uh it's like being trapped in this tiny box with these uh uh, electric brummy voices. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the streets would have been a million times better if he'd actually kept his Birmingham <laughs> accent instead instead of instead of sounding like a, a really angry David Beckham. Well, it's he's got that sort of hybrid voice. And yeah, it's a bit of both in it. Yeah, I can think of the only three people I can think of who've got it are the bloke out of the streets, Stuart Lee, uh, and me. Um, <laughs> The only three people I've ever heard where you have a, a Birmingham accent that's or a West Midlands accent that's mostly faded and as the space has been filled by a southeast accent. Um, but I don't know. After those, the only the only record I can think of which really uses the accent is "Funky Moped" by Jasper Carrot, on which on which the backing band is uh, ELO. Oh my God. I was going to mention that in a bit. I mean, one thing one thing I need to get over here is ELO, they, they look like dog shit, don't they? Yeah. They look like a renaissance fair. <laughs> yeah, much facial hair. And you've got um, Mick Kaminsky. Oh, it's so much perm. Yeah, Mick Kaminsky with his blue violin um, is the only kind of concession to kind of glam or glamour. And the way, the way mm. they're lined up on stage struck me as really odd. They're all pretty much in a straight line on stage, except yeah. for uh, Beth Bevan, the drummer, who's right at the back. And uh, there's there's this whole, of course, litigious history between Jeff Lynne and Bev Bevan that, that ensues. And you wonder whether this was kind of the start of it. <laughs> he just got exiled behind the rest of them. So the following week and every week after, Knight Rider failed to break the chart. Do you think they'd be shitting themselves about that? They probably saw themselves as an album band in a way. So mm. um, they kind of had a foot in both camps, didn't they? That... that they were they were a hit machine mm. like ABBA were a hit machine, but also they wanted to be almost like Led Zeppelin or something. That you know they, they wanted to be a big serious kind of prog rock hard rock act. So they they might have taken the failure of the single as some kind of validation in a weird kind of way. Like well you know we're not just about the hits anyway. Yeah, or a kick up the arse. Maybe because the follow-up "Strange Magic" only got to number thirty-eight in July of this year, but they'd finished the year strong with "Living Thing," which got to number four in December. That's the Electric Light Orchestra and Night Rider. Here's somebody who's doing so well. She has a record at number six, theme from Mahogany. And this one, she's gone straight in at number 24 this week. The lovely Diana Ross and Love Hangover. Blackburn, strangely unencumbered by girls, as is the want of Top of the Pops presenters of the era, introduces the next song, Love Hangover by Diana Ross. The lovely Diana Ross. Diana Ross has already been covered in chart musics 5, 8 and 9, and by this point in her career, she's still getting over starring in the film Mahogany, where she fell out with Barry Gordy before shooting had been completed, and he was forced to use a body double to finish it off. 
This is the third release from the LP, Diana Ross, and was never intended as a single until the Fifth Dimension announced that they were going to cover it, which inspired Motown to rush it out in America, where it got to number one. Over here, it's the follow-up to the theme from Mahogany, do you know where you're going to, which has just dropped down from number five to number six, and it's this week's highest new entry at number 24. I mean, this song, um, Marvin Gaye, was considered for it. So do you think his version would have been better than this? It's hard to imagine it. I'd like to hear it's it. It's hard to imagine it because this yeah. is, uh, there's something really feminine about this record because of the way yes. that she sings it. Yeah, Slinker, it's very sort of breathy and uh, swooning. Uh, and you can't help but think that uh, Marvin would have had to take a slightly different approach. mm you know the story behind this. I, I don't know if it's just an urban myth or what, but supposedly the producer Hal Davis actually got Diana pissed the night beforehand in Las Vegas, if I remember rightly, and so she really did have a hangover. Um, and you know, to make her sound a bit kind of husky and sexy the next day when they recorded, and also they they installed um, a flickering strobe light in the studio to help her kind of get in the zone for the disco section. If that had been me, I'd have puked my ring. <laughs> yeah, you're hungover anyway, and there's a strobe light going off. It's amazing she got through yeah, it. Yeah, really. that's... Also, does that mean that she sang this song after eating a full English breakfast? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell, did you do the same thing for Upside Down? Oh, man. <laughs> I bet old um, Boney Blackbird, as my dad used to call him, is loving this one, isn't he? Because... Uh, he actually um, he had an important role in Diana Ross's career because um, yes, he did. Yes, Tony Blackburn persuaded Motown to release "I'm Still Waiting" as a single. Yeah, he picked he picked up on it when it was just an album track, and then it became a biggest solo hit at that point in the UK. Um, mm. "Love Hangover" is a really useful record for DJs um, because of the tempo change. It gets you from the erection section back into the dancing because of that. Right, it's really, of course, really yes. by club DJs for that. Yeah. It's, it's, it is just um, a, a peerless, immaculate record, isn't it? Um, by the way, do, do we know if this video was even intended for this song, or is it just like a load of random clips of Diana edited together? Because she's, she's never mouthing the words, and she's wearing about a million different outfits. I, I yeah. mean, and you, also, it's in the wrong aspect ratio. Ah, and it's really yeah. rare to see stuff on TV in the old days in the wrong aspect ratio. But it is. It makes her look like Beaker. I can't understand <laughs> how that could have happened. I don't understand. I understand now why things uh, sometimes turn up on TV in the wrong aspect ratio. But in the days of wall-to-wall 4-3 uh, TV screen shaped uh, mm. television, I don't see how it could have happened. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a like, load of clips from Mahogany, you know. Uh, Maybe. Just, just, just a guess. It's a very 21st century thing, though, seeing stuff stretched like that. Yeah. It's like when older relatives are watching UK Gold on their widescreen yes. telly. It's like, why is Del Boy's head elliptical? Oh, I've never yeah. noticed. Oh, yeah. I don't really, I don't really <laughs> notice. I can, cha- I can change it for you. If like, no, leave it, leave it. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, the, what 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 they're screening is a montage of uh, Diana being all sensual and that in in as you said about fifty thousand different costume changes, um, uh, and it works. It works very well, doesn't it? Well, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. It'll do. I mean, this is this is crying out to be uh, emoted to by Pan's people, I think. Yeah, that would have worked, actually. Yeah. 
Actually, having a uh, having a hangover. That <laughs> All about people absolutely hanging. Yeah, yeah, just sitting on a settee, just hunched up, going, just looking. All in kind off. of Ugg boots and duvets over. Them, you know, just like looking, yes, yeah, <laughs> looking exactly, really, yeah, yeah, like yeah. with the curtains drawn. Yeah, and the thing is, um, we just had you know, Andrea True connection as a, an adult performer doing a disco record, but mm. there's something quite kind of infantile about the sound of the Andrew Q record. Whereas this is actually adult disco, if you know what I mean. It really does yes. have that kind of mature feel to it. The one thing this yeah. does have in common with yeah. Andrea True is that it's early enough in the disco boom that you can still do it how you want, which is really good for Diana yeah. Ross because it frees her up from the sort of the stylistic rigidity of the stuff she'd been doing in recent years. Um I mean, she'd become very much a ballad singer, and then she was doing that that Billie Holiday stuff. And it with this, she can take that breathy vocal style and stretch it out to a logical conclusion. You know, it's it, much more open uh, and free uh, <clears throat> as a singer. Um, yeah. And I wish I had more to say about this record because it's so brilliant, but it's one of those tracks which almost defies discussion and cri- criticism because it's that... No, you, you make a good point there, though, about her being this kind of ballad singer and it's never mind sort of DJs in club nights shifting from the erection section to the dancey bit. Diana Ross's entire career is doing that midway through yeah, this yeah, record. Yeah. It's like that yeah. is the kind of, her, her whole career is turning on a sixpence in the middle of yeah. that record. Yeah. But Very that particular true. mix of um, sort of rhythm and ambience, it's like sort of astral funkiness like, or like a, like a funky mist it's always notoriously difficult to put it into words because it doesn't seem to relate to anything on earth except, you know, Gary Davis's mm. erotic ideal, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's hard to describe. Um, it's like it's almost like really pure and abstract. But it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing record. And, and of course, at this time, you know, a lot of uh, the early 70s soul artists are coming a right cropper trying to jump on the disco bandwagon. Mm. I mean, Isaac Hayes is uh, at number 10 at the moment with, with, I think, Disco Connection, I think it's called. Is that right? Yeah, with his, with his love handles on display on the uh, shot they use on the chart. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, you, you have people like Curtis Mayfield, they have a go, and it, it just doesn't work. But with Diana, it does. Is it because she's female? Well, I mean, a more direct comparison would be Martha Reeves, Um who, yeah. you know, was neck and neck almost with Diana Ross in the 60s. Um, but she tried to do a disco thing and, and it totally flopped. Um, so, yeah, it was it was quite quite rare, I suppose, for people to kind of um, survive both eras. Mm. But I think you could have given this backing track to almost anyone and they could have made a success of it. Well, and Paul Nicholas, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. Disco like it used to be. <laughs> so the following week, Love Hangover jumped five places to number 19 and would eventually get to number 10. Diana Ross's last top 10 hit in the UK until Upside Down in 1980. The follow-up, I thought it took a little time, only got to number 32. from Diana Ross. Time now to go up the M1 motorway to the scratchway service area and we are going to find Laurie Lingo, the plastic chickens, the dipsticks, everything, and Convoy GV. 
It was a foggy day on the 6th of May in a scammel hall in Bricks. It was just cracking dawn and I started to yawn because I couldn't find any nice chicks. I tried Newport, Pagnell, Toddington and even Watford Gap. But after so many exigent sausage and beans, what I really needed was a nap. Oh, God. <laughs> Here we go. Laurie <laughs> oh, Lingo and the dipsticks are Dave Lee Travis and Paul Burnett. The former may have already been discussed on chart music, I, I can't remember, and uh, he's currently manning the drive time slot, which has been rebranded, it's DLT, okay? While the latter <laughs> is currently Radio 1's weekday dinner time presenter, who apparently created this song on air whilst playing the CW McCall single Convoy, which got to number two in March of this year. It was rushed released in collaboration with the Ladybirds, a female backing trio who was. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Known as the Vernon's Girls due to them all working at the aforementioned football pools company who mm-hmm. appeared on Oh Boy, The Benny Hill Show and have been part of the Top of the Pops Orchestra since 1966. Wow. They also recorded the most scow song ever, You Know What I Mean, in 1962. And it's up this week from number 19 to number 14. And I step back and I yield the floor to my compatriots. I hope he jackknifes. <laughs> <laughs> this is well Brexit, isn't it? <laughs> DJs doing songs. You know, we've we've seen examples before, you know, we 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 we, we all remember the uh uh, the, the the brown sauce incident and uh, Tony of course got to number 31 in 1968 with so much love. So yeah. No, let's not piss about. Let's get stuck in this fucking song. I was actually, I was actually thinking about DJs doing records and if there'd ever been a good one. And the best one I can think of is "Let's Take a Trip" by Godfrey, uh, which is you know a, an okay novelty <laughs> record. And I really think that number two is probably "Snot Rap" by Kenny mm. Everett. Um, that's that's how low the bar is. So. Yeah, I mean, wait, if you're um, talking about British DJs, yeah, if you expand that out, then obviously you know Sly and the Family Stone. There we go. There's there's your top fifty. Everything by Sly and the Family Stone, but Sly and the Family Stone. This is not my first thoughts um, when this came on. Um, and by the way, I, I didn't give myself sort of cheat sheet thing of looking to see what's what's coming. So I, I watched it kind of blind. Were and I, I just wrote down, oh for fucking 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 fuck's sake, and this came on. Um, <laughs> I mean, for a start, it's it's a really lame comedy trope taking a 
heroic American narrative or American mode mm. and, and transposing it to a British setting or bathos. So, for example, like, you know, Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West by Benny Hill, or we mentioned earlier, Funky Moped by Jasper Carrot, or pretty much anything by the Baron Knights. Um, so the original Convoy was by C.W. McCall. So here we've got Dave Lee Travis playing McCall. I'd rather see Dave Lee Travis play Macbeth. Um, he's wearing this. <laughs> he's wearing this super scouse. I'd rather see him play Davina. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing this this super scouse superhero costume and speaking in a bad Liverpoolian accent. And to give you an idea, no, of, he's he's in a white jumpsuit with a red mask, yeah, gloves and a calf adornments, shall we say? Uh, and the red mask obviously doesn't cover his beard, so no. immediately you know who it is. Yeah, his, his pubic face. And um, yes. to, to give you an idea of, of the level of humour, he does that bait-and-switch rhyming thing, which I've now learned is called a subverted rhyme, or in America, yes. a Miss Susie, where you're misdirected towards expecting a rude word, but at the last second it delivers an innocent one instead. So it goes, I tried Newport Pagnell, Toddington, and even Watford Gap, but after so many egg and chips, sausage and beans, what I really needed was a nap. Right? Oh. I know. Uh, by the way, I also hate, hate, hate the comedy of specifics, that very British vein of comedy that holds that mentioning a place with a banal name like Newport Pagnell is inherently funny. I've always hated that. Um, it's that kind of Victoria Wood thing. She does that a lot. And I, I really don't like it. And it's no coincidence. Oh, that you, you did not just compare Dave Lee Travis to Victoria Wood. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not a fan of her either. I know that's, we're going to lose a load of listeners, but um, it's, it's no coincidence to me that the Smiths, started going badly wrong after they released um, a B-side called Is It Really So Strange, which contains the line, I lost my bag at Newport Pagnell. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, how funny he mentioned Newport Pagnell. Oh, I, I really hate that kind of kind of humour. Um, I've got loads more to say, but I'm going to just wheel back a minute and uh, let Taylor have a say. In you come, Taylor. It what, it what really comes across on this record is that contempt for pop music, which you sort of sense in so many of these old DJs uh, like Dave Lee Travis thinks he can just have a bash piss about and it will do you know he's got no sense that he's polluting anything he thinks it's just a bit of fun um, and if you don't laugh it could be hazardous to your health you know but he can't do it he's not funny he can't even deliver the lines properly um, you know he's everything's hit much too hard and his timing is abysmal and he can't he can't do a scouse accent or he can't sustain a scouse accent but he can only have been doing it as a as a derisive gesture because he's from manchester uh so Derby. well yeah he's from Derby. i think he grew up in manchester or he spent most of his time Buxton in manchester uh. and he's uh so he could have made his protagonist <clears throat> a mank trucker which would have worked yeah, just yeah, as yeah. well but he insists on ruining it by doing an accent he can't do just to be a dick, although it's not the worst accent he does in this song, of course. <laughs> um, no, 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 we'll come to that later. Yeah. Um, and also spare a thought for Paul Burnett, the Richard Hammond of this setup. As indeed, <laughs> as indeed On his was, own song. He was the Richard Hammond of every setup he was ever involved in. Um, but yeah. But this is his fault, isn't it, Burnett? Because um, yeah. he plays, because they, they've all got sort of CB radio handles and he's the plastic chicken character yes. wearing a chicken suit. 
this is his fault because as you say it started out as a skit parody on his radio one show so he's a dlt enabler um, yes first yeah. of all by the way why is it burnett he's from yorkshire surely it's burnett but he, he wanted it to sound sexier i don't know yeah um the most interesting and, and it worked, thing didn't it <laughs> oh yeah the most interesting thing I, I could find about paul burnett is that he discovered a load of lord haw tapes when he was at radio luxembourg really? which had been broadcast from there during the nazi, nazi occupation of course, yeah. which is pretty amazing um, yeah he burnett tried this again a decade later with that that novelty rambo song rugged and mean butching on screen but people weren't having that uh only got oh. to number 52 um Oh, can you imagine way, if Dave Lee Travis had nicked that? Oh, man. Um, oh, t- uh, Trambo. <laughs> oh, God, don't. Um, by oh. the way, right, there's uh, some uh, Blackburn <laughs> connections to this record. Um, um, in, in Poptastic, the uh, uh, Tony Blackburn autobiography, um, he reveals that when he was uh, um, at Radio Caroline on the boat, um, he goes, I shared a cabin with a large and rather loud DJ called Dave Lee Travis. It wasn't always easy. <laughs> so oh. basically just reading between the lines there the, the horror oh. the horror of Blackburn having to share a cabin with Gavin oh um, that's awful isn't it there's also um, uh, uh, um, a, a Paul Burnett mention in Optastic which is that uh, when Blackburn and his wife Tessa Wyatt broke up the papers wrongly reported that she had shacked up with Paul Burnett <laughs> so all this is in the background when uh when blackburn in a very even tone just sort of recites yes. the names of the participants in this yeah yeah it really is yeah it really is talking of books i've got uh i've got um david hamilton's book here called the golden days of radio one Ooh. and he's devoted a chapter to each dj uh, oh my god uh, uh, travis's uh it says so what kind of bloke was he Tactile for sure, a hugger oh. of women and men. Uh, Since he was such a great bear of a man, when he hugged you, you knew you'd been hugged. A practical joker with an enormous laugh, a man adored by his mother. His was the only DJ's mother I remember coming along to our events. She was a mini version of Dave. <laughs> Open brackets, without the beard, of course. Jesus. I mean, this this record is is really based on two shaky concepts. Like, firstly, as Simon mentioned, the the idea that taking American things and replacing the details with sort of crap down at heel British stuff is automatically funny, you know, mm. uh, uh, not as a self mocking or to deflate pomposity, but just as a a sort of gormless celebration of British idiocy and yes. stunted ambition. And the other thing it's based on is the idea that Dave Lee yeah. Travis is a funny and charming man, as opposed to yeah. uh, a, a goat's ass that talks. Um, <laughs> it's, you, you really have to buy into that before you can, uh, before you can even accept this. But imagining Dave Lee Travis as a lorry driver. Yeah. I'll tell you what else as well. This is this is so early in the CB radio days that he doesn't even refer to it as CB radio. He calls it two-way radio. Yeah. <laughs> Which really... So in a sense, he was a pioneer. Yes. Because, um, yeah. I mean, this is, what, 
five, six years before the CB boom. This is absolutely loaded with um, with the 70s sitcom stereotypes, isn't it? You've got... Uh, you've got the the queen going by in a car one which you know happens a lot usually um, prince philip sticks two fingers up like he did in steptoe and son uh, you've got the comedy homosexual mm. in a camper van <laughs> yeah typical <laughs> typical gay always a bothering dlt in a sexually yeah. predatory way because there's a yes. there's a bear in the air yes and uh, of course there is uh, the comedy black person Oh, God. DLT goes into a... It's a London bus driver, isn't it? Yeah. There was even a London transport bus. Yeah, that's a nice wagon. Fares, please. In a in, in a sort of Jim Davidson-style uh, racist uh, West Indian accent. Yeah, in the style of ch- yeah, yeah, chalky yeah. white. Jim Davidson's non-existent black friend. Yes. And have you noticed, by the way, that DLT dodges it in the performance. He gets one of the backing singers to lip-sync it for him. As if to kind of distance himself. And also, do you notice it's not the black member of the Ladybirds who does it? Yeah, it's the blonde one. Yeah. Do, do you think it was offered to her? <laughs> it must have been. Probably. It must have been. Yeah. Fuck yeah. You In fact, what? As I, if that would have somehow made it okay. It's like, yeah. look, she's black. She's doing it. She's fine with it. You yeah. know. I, I, I mean, we have to we have to bring out the while Jim Davidson was pioneering this this comical poke at uh, at ethnics uh, DLT also had a black character called Edwin oh. that he used to trot out every now and again there's a oh, there, God, a, a, yeah. an actual fact when uh, Radio 1 had their 40th anniversary there was one show of of, of clips of uh, best ofs of the first 10 years of Radio 1 and they played it yeah they played uh, Edwin interviewing some brewer who ends up throwing him into a uh, a mash tun or whatever you call it? That sounds hilarious. Yes, it was all oh, my my aching sides. What's incredible here is that a clip which itself could not be shown now because of who's singing also contains two other separate moments which would stop it being <laughs> shown today. There's the chalky white moment, of course. And then at the end, there's that unwelcome cameo of a photo. Well, the suicide jockey, yes, right at the end. Sir Jimmy Savile, OBE, Mm. KCSG, as we're contractually obliged to call him. Yes, suicide jockey, if only. Yeah, he brandishes this photo of Jimmy Savile with a cigar in his mouth, and he does an impression of the the yodel thing as it happens or whatever. And it's just, you know, you're thinking, can this song get any more horrific? And then, yes, it does. That happens. But amazingly, this song did feature on the repeat on BBC Four in 2011. They cut out th- they cut out three songs from this Top of the Pops for that BBC Four repeat, and they kept this in. Was this before he'd been convicted or even accused? I'm not sure. Oh, this is 2011, so this is yeah, before yeah. everything. But but even but so, you know, oh that <laughs> this, this this whole performance and this record is to me, it's like some kind of horrific dystopian vision of what an eternal 1976 would have been like. David Travis stamping on a human mm. face forever, bellowing through his pubic yeah. grimace, telling you to laugh. Telling you to laugh. Not making you laugh, yeah. telling you to laugh. Yeah, with that mask on, in close-up, it's fucking yeah. horrendous. It's like what you see is you're losing consciousness as he's revving up the chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and also Dave Lee Travis in a in a lorry in 1976 with a mask over half of his face. Oh, that yeah. cab's gonna funk, isn't it? Uh, yeah, oh. if, you were, if you were a female making his own gravy. If you were a female hitchhiker, you would definitely put your <laughs> thumb down if you saw that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever have a CB or have a go on a CB? Yes, my, my mate had one. Yeah, so did my mine. mate had one, but he wasn't very good at it because all he'd do is he 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 wouldn't have a handle or anything like that. He'd just listen in on uh, police cars and stuff like that and other people. There was yeah. one bloke we, we I went round his bed uh, I went round his house one night. We we're in his bedroom, but on the on the CB, and the only thing I can remember was following one bloke around, um, and all he was doing was you know asking for a come on or a I don't know a fucking ten four or something for any uh, female CBers. I mean he he said he said it in all the lingo and he was really good at it. You know, had it all damn pat. But as soon as a as soon as a woman came on. Uh, he'd say, "Have you got big piss flaps?" <laughs> it's, like, it's like the sex pistols in <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah. that thing where they go to America. Some yeah. product, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, you know that that wasn't really a big feature of the film Convoy. Remember, it's weird how you know in about 1981, wasn't it? I think 81 might have been the, the high point of yeah. CB as a kind of cultural moment. Well, it's um, when it got legalized. Yeah. that was when it got really big. right. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I remember. Um, you know, like these days on market stalls, you get those really shit T-shirts that say things like yeah. "I Facebook your mum" or something like that. It was like that. I remember in there's this market called Bessemer Road Market in, in Cardiff, where there were just all these badges that said something like, you know, 10-4, good buddy" and stuff like that. It was either that or ones that said "I shot Jr." Those were the two things. At the time. Yeah, and have you got big? Piss yeah, you're right. This is years before that. <laughs> so yeah, big selling T-shirt at the time. <laughs> My mate's dad had a. CB and it was right when they were legalized and I used to go around and stare at it in awe um he was a he was a plasterer so he was richer than the rest of the street and spent that money freely and conspicuously so any sort of modish gadget would turn up there right and this is where I saw ET 2 months before it was in the cinema on a pirate video uh, it was you know Yorkshire terriers and a velveteen sofa his handle was plasterboard um but it was the thing is me and uh, my mate his son used to sort of have a go on it but there was a a hostility towards carpet monkeys (laughs) that which means (laughs) children from most cbs unsurprisingly but yeah you could listen in there used to be a bloke who would park his car in the street and put his CB on with a little speaker on the roof and listen to people having romantic conversations and stuff. But I was... thought you meant that there was this antagonism between plasterers and carpenters. <laughs> <Carpeters. No. laughs> yeah, always getting all these spots bastards. of plaster on the edges of the <laughs> No, but it was, I mean, it was, it was shittery, wasn't it? It was like the radio days of the internet. It was like this idea of being able to... It, was, it seemed really exciting that you could converse with idiots that you didn't know as long as as long as they were nearby it was like uh like on a telephone but more primitive and that yeah was and the, i suppose that, the uh that the, was the, the convoy thing the convoy thing would be the equivalent of like flash mobs on the internet wouldn't it when that was a thing yeah but the point is there was never a convoy it not was in this country a, no no it's just a bunch of people coming to the slow realization that there's nothing to say 
Yeah. There's nothing at all. To no say. one out there. No, yeah. it's like it, you really are alone. It's actually it's meant to make you feel less alone. It makes you feel more alone. Yeah. It's a bit like podcasting just... then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> The following week, Convoy GB jumped 10 places to number four, oh, its highest position. Fucking hell. Number four. Number four. The fourth Jesus. most popular record in the hit parade in the United Kingdom. In our lifetime, Simon, our lifetime, this happened. This is something that I find really bleak about the whole thing. Um, is I, I, Actually, I can't work out what's more bleak. The thought that Dave Lee Travis uh, believed that this was funny and would be popular or that he was right. I don't know what's worse. Anyway, sorry. And this, you know, this pisses on an enormous height on virtually every other Radio 1 DJ who released a single. Uh, it, it, it would be like UKIP Calypso getting into the top five this this decade. <laughs> Jesus. What about it, Akif? Ooh, Mercy Sakes, good buddy. You better give her the uh, front door and wave her online. Okay, Super Scouts, I'm waving her on. She's waving back. Uh, listen, plastic chickens, do you want to stick her in behind that suicide jockey? Uh, what's a suicide jockey? As it happened, how's about. <laughs> Okay. That's the sound of Convoy GB. Laurie Lingo and the Dipstick. Spell it down as Dave Lee Travis and Paul Burnett at number 14. And at number 13, it's Eric Carmen, all by myself. When I was young, I never needed anyone. Making love was just for fun. Those days are gone. Born in Cleveland in 1949, Eric Carmen started his music career as lead singer of Raspberries, an early 70s power pop band which got to number five in America with Go All The Way in 1972. After the band split up in 1975, Carmen launched a solo career and this is his debut single, which got to number two in America and is up this week from number 20 to number 13. It's also unashamedly based on Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto number two, which was under the public domain in the US, but not anywhere else. But Eric doesn't know that yet. After that horrible uh, halo of hair that we've, we've just had to endure... Um, we see another massive halo of hair at the beginning, but it's, yeah. it's a lot nicer, isn't it? It's, so a, it's, um, it's a lovely bit of work from the lighting guys, actually, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's beautiful. Spotlight behind his hair gives that kind of halo effect. So you can't see his face at first. And, yeah. then, and then then you do see him. And his, his head is... It's like something Radiohead would do. <laughs> his head is twice as big as his body, like like one of those nodding head figurines you can get. And, um, yeah. and when you do see his face, he looks like Eric Gates of Ipswich Town, but but a sad yes. Eric Gates of Ipswich Town. Yeah, and then, yeah. So very they, sad. <laughs> but they they put a lot of effort in it. I mean, assuming it's a BBC shoot that you know yeah. we'll be watching, because they they filmed it in two takes: one where he's holding a mic, and the other where he's sat at the piano, and they sort of put yeah. between the two. But so he he sings in that in that nasal voice. When I was young, I never needed anyone. And making love was just for fun. 
those days are gone. So what is it now for him? You know, making love is it like hard a, work? A grim you know, ordeal. Right yeah, <laughs> a grim ordeal. Uh, that makes him sound like Ron Atkinson, though, doesn't it? He's, <laughs> he's making love just for fun, <laughs> like he, like um, you know, footballers score goals just for fun. Yeah. Or... All right. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. The top of the hat. yeah, just like yeah. The next line was, "But I give it the full gun." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that that kind of doe-eyed, wobbly-lipped performance he gives, like like Princess Diana in that Martin Bashir interview, it makes yes. you want to ask, you know, you okay, hun? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, cheer up, mate. You're a pop star. And then, and then, six other equally sad Eric Carmens start revolving around the central one. Yeah. Like Bohemian Rhapsody style. And the thing is, his, his gravitas, yeah. uh, the gravitas of this song, the sadness, is undermined by the motor mechanic shirt he's wearing with an SO yes. on it. It's like when Alan Partridge turns up at a funeral in a Castrol GTX bomber jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think those, it's like garage mechanics overalls, isn't it? I think it's for the common touch, but he's a... He's an unconvincing mm. grease monkey, it has to be said. Yeah. He is, isn't he? Very like like, like so. Billy Joel in Uptown Girl. Right? Yeah, yes. but at least Billy yes. Joel looks like a sort of a little Jersey bloke, you know what I mean? Whereas this is like... Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. The fact that it's got Rachmaninoff's piano concerto in it just adds to the impression of the events of this song taking place in the life of someone who has at some point taken piano lessons. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, the trouble with records like this, and to some extent... Nielsen's version of Without You, which I think this might be partly based on, that structure of having these sort of quiet passages giving way to a great emotional eruption in the chorus, it just puts me in mind of I've Lost My Mummy by Rolf Harris. There's a a sort of similarity. But it's... I mean, I, I do quite like the raspberries. I'm not sure they're half as good as some people want to think or used to want to think and you know this is not an offensive record but it's pure drip music and Mm. it's like a lot of songs in this genre it's so self-obsessed that it doesn't really let the listener in you know Uh, he sings most of it with his eyes closed he won't he won't even look at us he's so absorbed in the significance of his pain you know and uh, it's not even singing to or about anyone if you listen to it, he's just basically saying that he's got no mates and is, to put it gently, going through tissues at a rate <laughs> you wouldn't really expect from a man without a cold. Um, but I don't <laughs> I don't even dislike it, really. I he's just, watching Andrea True, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think it's healthy for anyone to listen to this sort of music. Right? It's not it's, right. It's, uh, no, it's, this, is, this is why we need a minister for loneliness, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's not uh, good for the soul. No. It's not. It's interesting Taylor mentioning Harry Nilsson, because if Paul Nicholas is a destitute man's David Essex, then Eric Carmen is a biblical barefoot beggars Harry Nilsson on this song, really, isn't it? <laughs> Do you reckon women fancied him? I don't know. I don't know. Let me try and be a 70s woman for a minute. Do they want to mother him or do they want to sort of make it better, make him all right? No, it's still, still David Essex for me, I'm afraid. See, I would put it this way. You wouldn't really want to play that piano <laughs> after he'd been on it because uh, all, all the spunk all over the, the keys coming off his fingers and I mean you you wouldn't want to define yourself the way that he does it because there is a difference between uh honest expression of pain 
and you know uh, cloying self pity. And bear in mind, it is the seventies. What is a bloke going to do on his own in nineteen seventy six? Yeah, well, the telly shuts down at I mean, half eleven. Yeah, no, no, no Xbox, no, uh, no Tinder. You know, yeah, I, I do understand why he's feeling a bit sorry for himself because it's like, oh shit, I'm on my own, and uh, the, the telly's going to switch off soon. It's just fuck my life. It's just that sense that uh, all of this, that the, the entire expression of his loneliness and sadness is entirely for the benefit of any passing women comes across yeah. so strongly this whole genre um, of music was huge at the time there wasn't it? it's kind of really wet depressive piano based singer songwriting stuff yeah um you know gilbert o'sullivan as well obviously i mean nilson's yeah. nilson's a class above i suppose one of my mates she went oh god back in the 90s uh she went to a wedding and uh the the groom's widowed mother insisted on having the first dance with him uh-huh. And it was to this. Jeez. Exactly, yeah. That must have been fun. Yeah, that made, imagine the bridesmaid would have been, uh, uh, what was her name, Cheryl Vernon from <laughs> yes. Wedding Bell Blues yes. video. This is, yeah. really would fit in. So the following week, all by myself, nudged up one place to number 12, its highest position. The follow-up, Never gonna fall in love again. Oh, he's a he's a fucking one man Facebook thread, isn't he? This bloke was also nicked from Rachmaninoff, but failed to chart here. All by myself was taken to number six in September of two thousand and four by Celine Dion. By which time Eric had given up twelve percent of royalties from the song to Rachmaninoff's estate. singing all by himself at number 13. Here's an American group who are touring around at the moment, all around Great Britain. Well, not actually at the moment, they're here with us at the top of the box. That is Night and the Pips. And they're going to take that midnight train to Georgia. Tony bumblefucks his way through a link explaining that the next group are currently touring the UK. Why, it's Gladys Knight in the Pips and Midnight Train to Georgia. Formed in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1952, the Pips were a R&B band managed by Gladys Knight's mam before being mentored by Charlie Atkins, a dancer and choreographer from Alabama who drilled them to dancing perfection. They signed to Motown in 1966 after insisting that Atkins stayed with him, leading to him working with the rest of the roster. But they were kept in the second division of the label and didn't score their first UK hit until Take Me In Your Arms and Love Me in the summer of 1967. After failing to make the charts with the original version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine, they'd have to wait until 1972 for their next UK hit, Walk In My Shoes, which got to number 35 that summer. But they'd then go on to rack up five hits on the bounce and switch labels from Motown to Buddha. 
In the UK, this song, a cover version of the Jim Weatherly song Midnight Plane to Houston, is the follow-up to Part-Time Love, which got to number 30 in November of 1975. But the single had been a number one hit in America in 1973, and it's not in the charts yet. I do not understand why they didn't release this earlier, because it's fucking brilliant, this song. It must be nearly eight o'clock, Top the Pops, because you can hear the pips. Oh, oh, oh. No, no apologies. That's a joke worthy of Tony Blackburn. Um, doubly so, in fact, because he invented time checks, as he keeps reminding people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nobody knew what the time was until Tony <laughs> came along. Um, I I used to hate Gladys Knight. Um, because I had why I I held a disproportionate grudge against her for ruining a compilation album. Because um, when when <laughs> okay. I first when I first got into Motown because of being into the Style Council and Dexies and Culture Club and all those other bands who ripped off Motown. Um, mm. I got this otherwise brilliant various artists compilation called The Big Wheels of Motown with loads of absolute bangers on there. But there were just mm. two really syrupy 70s ballads to ruin the vibe on that album. One of them is I'm Still Waiting by Diana Ross and the other is mm. Help Me Make It Through the Night, the Chris Christopherson song by Gladys yeah, yeah. Pips. And it was way too adult for me and way too kind of showbiz Pebble Mill at one, if you know what I mean. So I mm. unreasonably resented Gladys Knight for that. But she she does have a great choked up, just been crying voice. And and you can't argue with, with Midnight Train to Georgia, which I think in Gladys Knight in the Pips hands is a political song in a, a gentle and subtle way. Because it was originally written, as you say, by Jim Weatherly, white guy, um, country song. Yeah. But in, yeah. the, in the hands of soul singer like Gladys Knight or, or Sissy Houston who recorded it before her it takes on a different meaning it's it's um it's you know sung by a black singer it's telling a story about the glass ceiling on on the ambition of young black people to make it mm. big in 70s America it's it's about it's about thwarted dreams yeah. and uh, you know who um who gave the uh, original song the title Midnight Plane to Houston no Farrah Fawcett Majors really he was knocking, yeah, he was knocking about, the singer, the, the songwriter was knocking about with Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett Majors. And uh, yeah, she was, uh, she just said, oh yeah, I've got to got to go tonight. I've uh, got to get the midnight plane to Houston because that's where a, oh. a family lived. What's interesting so, is um, the way um, that the backing singers, the Pips, um, ad- yeah. they, they advanced the narrative with, with their lines. So instead of just repeating what the lead singer has sung, which is the standard thing, they actually say they, they sing different stuff than the lead singers, um, and, it, and it pushes the, the storyline along. It's kind of, kind of an interesting uh, mm. way of, of, of delivering it. Yeah, I mean, and you do, you do touch upon the political side of things, but this is a this is a universal song because it is about people kind of like walking away from their dreams, you know. And, and what makes it even more tragic is is that it's not. Her. Yeah, she's going to go with him. She's going to stick by him, yeah. Yeah, she has to capitulate to this loser <laughs> and, uh, who won't even stay in the same state as her because uh, he can't face his own failure. That's an uncharitable reading of the song, just as a bit of contrast. But, yeah, they all count. Yeah, she could have said, well, <laughs> she could have said, yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see you back in Georgia. He's fucking off back to Tbilisi. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, she could easily have said, all right, well, you know, safe journey back, and um, yeah. maybe I'll see you at Christmas. But, yeah. you know, 
um, I'm going to see how it goes out here. But there's never a bad time to hear this song, especially not when it's actually being sung by Gladys Knight and the Pips right in front of you, even with Gladys in a Windy Miller smock. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the Pips look terrible. The Pips are dressed like country rubes in the city. I don't know, man. Right? I like, these, I like they, they've got this tablecloth table check jacket, so that kind of quite fly. Uh, yeah, to me, they look like farmers trying to make it in the big apple. They got, you know, is that, maybe, maybe that's maybe appropriate, to, really, you know. Yeah. yeah, or cut price salesmen, like flogging Norga hide way uptown. But the, dan- the dancing gives the game away, though, because you see them dancing. It's like, yeah, OK, all right, they're, they're actually really cool. The other thing that I'd like to direct people towards on the on the video playlist is the episode of the Richard Pryor show where uh, the the Pips perform this song on their own with no Gladys Knight. It's fucking beautiful. Wow. No words, no 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 singing from Gladys Knight, just the Pips bit. It's great. But this is, um, presumably, they're backed by the BBC Orchestra yes. on this. Um, because they're singing live, and it's obviously not the record. Um, but there's a really nice warm rolling feel to this that's really different to the record i mean despite the fact that it's being played by far hackier musicians like far hackier and presumably far drunker (laughs) musicians um but the sort of the the well-practiced immediacy of the singing really sells it uh also i think gladys has got a cold right if you listen closely that all these blunted consonants right it's like bid dight train to georgia uh, but it's very intelligent how she drops second class return to dotting ag yay yeah <laughs> she allows her voice to to crack over a lot of the consonants in this song if you listen it's a really smart a really sort of someone who goes out and sings every night and knows how to do this oh i've got a bit yeah. of a cold i'll i'll crack my voice over the consonants so people don't hear them. but she can't get away with it on the phrase Biddite train to Georgia. <laughs> it's, it, it's too central to the song, but it doesn't hold up no. at all. In fact, there's a few songs like this where people have got a cold, like the Long and Winding Road by the Beatles. Really? McCartney's got a cold. Yeah, you can hear it. And the other one is Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, oh. which you know it's a amazing record. Stevie Nicks is croakier than usual on it, and if you listen, she actually sings. Um, in the stillness of remembering what you had, uh, it's really noticeable as soon as you spot it. I think, I mean, you, you'd think she'd have gone out and got something to clear her nose, but obviously not. Yeah, I wonder what. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine what that would have been. But, but, but this song—it's, it is quite—it it is the happiest miserable song ever, isn't it? And it's and it's because it's it's seen from the woman's perspective. I mean that blo- her bloke is it, you know if he was singing this song, it's like oh fucking hell, I've got to go back to the, the fucking shithole I've just come from and look everyone in the face and they're all going to take the piss out of me for thinking I was summer. Where she's like oh well George might be nice you know get get loads of peaches and you know fuck it why not? It's an amazing uh, record of self sacrifice, really, isn't it? I'd rather yes. be with him in his world than without him in mine. Yeah. Incredible life. Good on you, Gladys. So, two weeks later, Midnight Train to Georgia would enter the charts at number 48 and a month later would peak at number 10. 
The follow-up, Make Yours a Happy Home, would get to number 35 in August of this year and then have eight more top 40 hits before splitting up in In 1974, Silver Convention were a production duo consisting of a Yugoslavian arranger called Sylvester Leve and a German protest singer of the 60s called Michael Kunz. They had their first hit in May of 1975 with Save Me, and this is the follow-up to Fly Robin Fly, which got to number 28 in November of 1975, and it's up this week from number 10 to number 9. For some reason, the BBC can't get hold of any footage of the group, so they They've gone for playing a selection of old black and white cartoons whistle test style. There's also no introduction on this because we've taken it from the UK gold version and it came after a a commercial break. So I hate it when that happens. Imagine what Tony could have said about this. You've got to try pretty hard to find a disco record from this era that I don't like. But Get Up and Boogie is one. Um, Mm. It sounds cursory and impassive and functional, not even in a good way. Uh, it tells you it tells you to get yeah. up a boogie, but it doesn't make you want to get up a boogie. Part of the problem is that all the bass is rolled off because it's 1970s telly. Um, so, and without the heavy bass, there's not much reason for this record to exist anyway because it's just four on the floor with a bass pulse with the same... Uh, musical and lyrical phrase going round and round and round and when you're dealing with that kind of minimalism everything has to balance or it just sounds silly now obviously this record is quite silly anyway and not very good but the point is it's a pure dance record there's nothing else to it at all so it has to be right on that basic level which means an earth pounding bass as soon as you take it off it's just intensely boring Um, and the animation traumatised my cat. Um, so oh, really? Yeah, as soon as it came on, she sat bolt upright, staring horrified at it right to the end. And it's not good at her age with her health. No. But, but soon- if you were a cat, though, you, you you would be quite horrified by this, wouldn't it? It's very... Well, considering what's going on in the in the animation, yeah. Well, let's let's go through it, shall we? Uh, for scene by scene, we have a snake dancing to a cat playing the piano. And then there's two giraffes strutting about. Uh, Then monkey brass section. Then two elephants tap dancing. Uh, Then the smaller cat uh, clonks the snake on the head with a bone and the pianist applauds. And then it, you know, then it takes a a, a rather troubled tone, doesn't it, chaps? Yeah, yeah. Uh, We have African tribesmen uh, dancing around a hut with spears and shields and the cats shitting themselves while the tribesmen stick their heads through the hut and and try to eat them. Uh, And then the cats end up in a pot. uh, And then we go back to a monkey band and uh, it finishes off with uh, two monkeys having a snog, which is is nice. But, you know, if I was your cat, Taylor, I wonder what would happen to them other two cats in the pot. 
Yeah, well, soothing her was at least a distraction for me from how creepy the animation really is. Um, yeah. Because it's that very yeah. uh, kind of early animation, sort of black and white. Uh, like it's kind 20s of 20s, type. isn't it? Yeah, and that early animation is always terrifying. If you watch yeah. stuff like, you know, even stuff like Gertie the Dinosaur and that, it's so crude and it feels so weirdly ancient that you get freaked out um the same way yeah. the original viewers must have been like the drawings they're coming alive yes. you know, for some reason live action stuff from the early 20th century still can have a great warmth to it like if you watch laurel and hardy or buster keaton it still feels really human um whereas early animation is like breathing in corpse dust Always, always gives me the creeps. It's worth remembering that, you know, back then cartoons weren't automatically kids' mm. uh, stuff, was it? Yeah. The only thing that the section with the African tribesmen is lacking is Dave Lee Travis yeah. doing the voices. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's a shame we don't see uh, the ladies of Silver Convention because they look great. It was just these three women yeah. in crazy outfits, like, you know, skin-tight jumpsuits and with feathery cuffs and stuff doing ludicrously basic dance moves almost in unison and smiling creepily. Mm. Although the clip I've seen before of them miming to this record is even more disturbing than the animation because, yeah, they're surrounded really? by these... It's got to be German. It can only be German TV. They're surrounded by <laughs> these strange overlapping sort of limb shapes, the colour of dead flesh. And it looks like they're standing in a mass grave basically but like but like they've been <laughs> miniaturized and they're literally dancing on a mass grave um i've no idea what it's meant to be but yeah i mean this um cartoon clip uh, presumably it wasn't sent to the bbc by silver conventions record company saying oh we think you should play this alongside the song so it must have been chosen by someone at the beat. I mean, what, Robin Nash or somebody thought, right, that's what we'll show. Yeah. What a weird decision to make. Well, they just went, oh, look, it's loads of animals yeah. and people dancing. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's position on the show is just weird in itself, given that um, there's not one but two um, pants people routines. So already you've got two songs where uh, there's, there's you know, no performer in the flesh. So really, I mean, couldn't they have just, I don't know, why? I just don't. I don't get why it's there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, as we said, the BBC uh, have got form in this sort of thing because they were doing it for Whistle Test yeah. since the early seventies. And you know, it wouldn't surprise me if this was um, if they just lifted this from a from a previous thing that that played on Whistle Test. Mm. There doesn't yeah. seem to be a, you know exact syncing of anything. Yeah, no, not, not at all. It's not cut no. to the beat at all, is it? No. But then again, you know, this is kind of like, this is demonstrating that, you know, disco's already being seen as this throwaway thing and you could put anything to it and it, and it won't matter. Yeah. But, yeah. In, you know, in the case of this record, that's pretty much accurate because it is fairly crap. I didn't like Fly Robin Fly either myself. No, me neither. And I love this kind of stuff. But talking about, as we were before, about the relationship between hit records and their follow-up, um, Fly Robin Fly is just, it's exactly the same. It's basically this record, but with a, it's got a minor chord in it. That's the only difference. And slightly different lyrics. And it's got an instrumental break that is like the theme from a daytime magazine programme. But it's the same concept of just, 
the same sort of banal phrase repeated an absurd number of times. It's like a, like an early Andy Warhol painting in music. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's no better than this. So the following week, Get Up and Boo get nudged up two places to number seven, its highest position. The follow-up, Tiger Bay was immediately released a week later but would only get to number 41 but they'd have one more hit in February 1977 with Everybody's Talking About Love There you go, that's the song that sold the convention number 9 this week and it's called Get Up and Boogie Here's one of my favourite Four Seasons records called Silver Star and to dance to it the lovely Pan's People Blackburn introduces one of his favourite songs by the Four Seasons, Silver Star. Formed in New Jersey in 1956 as the Four Lovers and then changing their name in tribute to the local bowling alley four years later, the Four Seasons first bothered the chart in late 1962 when Sherry Baber got to number eight. After 10 top 40 hits and three top 10 placings, they finally landed their first number one when Oh What A Night got to the top for two weeks in February of 1976. This is the follow-up to that and the first cut from the new LP, Who Loves Ya. It's up this week from number 27 to number 16 and it's the second of a double shift for Pan's People. However, what Tony has failed to mention is that this is the last ever appearance by Pan's People. Earlier this year, the last original member, Ruth Pearson, had decided to retire as she was about to turn 30, and Flick Colby and the Top of the Pops production team were keen to start with a new mixed gender troupe. However, auditions for a replacement were conducted without the knowledge of the BBC, who were well dischuffed, and it led to the newest member of Pan's People, Lee Ward, leaving earlier this month, claiming, quote, it's a big mistake. Men rush home to watch sexy ladies. They do not want to see other men. Yeah, once again, lesbians pushed out of the equation. <laughs> I mean, this is the snuffing out of the dying embers of Top of the Pops' golden age, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's already the golden age, which I consider to be 1972 to 1974. Uh, but this is, yeah, this is this is the, the definite end, isn't it? At least... At least Pan's people are going out with a very typical performance. You know, they've, yes. they've got the long, unkempt tinsel pubes. Um, well, you know, it was it was yes. the seventies, and um, and and yeah, they're wearing out. They've, they've got a silver star over their crotches with a bit of well, tinsel. It. It's, well, it's very tinsel literal. It's it. very literal. The silver stars on their heads, and and Pan's people were, were nothing if not literal. Um, mm. One of them does a twirl on a podium, nearly falls over, which I like. Um, which shows you the kind of time pressure they were always working under. And yeah. one of them... That, that was Ruth who got a, a spot on her own, which was, which was a nice Oh, touch. was it? Because, right, there's that... Hang on, there's the bit where one of them, who I thought was Cherry Gillespie, absolutely works her ass off during the slow bit in her tassel jumpsuit. Yeah. And, you know, I hope she got paid extra for that. Um, mm. But, yeah, um, I mean, we can talk about the song, but... Yeah, we'll put that to one yeah. side for the minute. Yeah, so yeah. it's all about the the people of Pan. Yeah. 
As if to make up for the missed opportunity of their previous routine on this programme, the very <laughs> first shot is of a pans person opening the white sheet wrapped around her to reveal that she's almost totally naked, <laughs> mm. which is as good a way as any to go out, I suppose. Yeah. But it's an interesting outfit because it, with the loincloth and the pointy thing on the head and the arms spread out wide and the prominent ribs... Uh, but also with the nipple glitter and the sparkly tassel dangling from the crotch, it's like an almost perfect cross between the crucified Christ uh, <laughs> and an exotic dancer in a in a in a port city somewhere. It's like a it's like at any minute Tony Blackburn's going to pierce a hole in her side with a spear and she's going to start firing <laughs> ping pong balls out of it. <laughs> But it's noticeably better. It's noticeably better than most Pan's people routines in terms of the actual dancing. Um, and yeah. I don't know whether that's by chance or whether Flick was pulling out all the stops for the... the yeah, because there's a lot of special effects here, isn't there? There's, um, you know, lots of overlays and green screen nonsense going on. They're going out with a bang, aren't they? They're going, they're going supernova, if you will. And Ruth's solo spot in the middle actually looks like proper dancing. Which, yes. you know, I mean, not that I know fucking anything about dancing, but I do know that a lot of the time what Pan's people are doing isn't really proper dancing. Uh, and this is, she's it's really expressive and, uh, you know, uh, like something that she's actually worked on. And you can, you can tell because it's great. The only thing that would make this even better would be if, the, if they... If they just basically zoomed in on, on one of the star crotches and it exploded and created a black hole and, and sucked everything into it. Um. <laughs> what a way to go that would be. Yeah, surely that wasn't it's beyond the budget of the BBC special effects department this well, time. Well, you know what I mean? They were doing Doctor Who at this time. I, they could have done it. What a, what a missed opportunity that they, they, they couldn't all transform into Ruby Flipper right there and like then. Like Doctor Who, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, regenerate. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Thank that's, you. That's the word I was looking for. Thank yeah, you, Taylor. Yeah. It, well, it's a horrific thought. Um, it is. <laughs> but the song, Silver Star, I fucking ate it. I wasn't really listening. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I love a bit of Four Seasons with Frankie Valley. I mean, who doesn't love a bit yeah. of Frankie Valley? But, you know, this is not one of their best. Is it? This is a kind of AOR country disco period. And, and it's not even... Um, this is probably one of the crappiest follow-ups to a brilliant number one ever. Well, yeah. And it's not even Frankie Valley on vocals. Um, it's the drummer, Gary Polchi, sang lead on this. Because Frankie Valley was losing his hearing um, due to um, otosclerosis. Yeah, yeah. I'd be ringing up Pete's Rutt and demanding that this Four Seasons got sent back. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the the over-sexiness of this routine. Um, yeah, you can't get away from it, can you, Taylor? Yeah, I'll be thinking quite a lot about it. But it's, I don't know, it's, I don't know if this is just me projecting onto the past, but it's like there's two ways you could look at this. One is a bunch of poor, exploited women suffering from a bad case of false consciousness or Stockholm syndrome, you know, flaunting themselves for an audience of wanking patriarchs. Or two, some beautiful dancers expressing themselves within the slightly restrictive limits of the programme they're working on and the era they're living in. Um, you know, you never get the sense of Pan's people um, doing it as anything other than people having a really good time doing what they enjoy, um, which is why yeah. 
you know, however sleazy the DJ intros and outros might get, um, you, you never get a bad feeling from them. You never get a sense that they're mm. pandering to anything. Do you know what I mean? Although they sort of are in a way. That you never get the sense that they're pandering to anything unpleasant. Top of the pops of this era without Pan's people is is it's unthinkable. Yeah, and this is actually a really mm. nice and slightly emotional farewell uh, for them. Who, of course, yeah, I mean they get no official send off; they just disappear. And that's and that's yeah. so wrong, man. They should have made such a big deal yeah, about they that. They just disappear and they're never spoken of again. You know, like they're totally disposable, as opposed yeah. to these completely uncreative uh inarticulate unfunny blockhead djs who seem to think they're fucking superstars and that tells you far more Mm. about 1970s sexism than this dance routine ever could Mm. they should at least have been gathered around tony blackburn at the end of the show all waving goodbye or something yeah 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 it's goodbye pans people hello ruby flipper don't get comfortable yes yeah. So the following week, Silver Star jumped up 10 places to number six and would get as high as number three. The follow up, a cover of We Can Work It Out from the soundtrack All This and World War Two, would only get to number 34, and it was a series of diminishing returns until they split up in the mid 80s. The following week, the new troupe, Ruby Flipper, made their debut, featuring former Pans persons Cherry Gillespie and Sue Menhainik and were managed by Ruth Pearson. Oh, Ruth got kicked upstairs, that's nice. Yeah, it's like a football manager, your playing career's over and, uh, yeah. Silver Star there, and that of course comes from the fabulous Four Seasons there, and Pants People dancing to it. Uh, Frankie Valley, of course, doing very well with his number as well. Of course, Fallen Angel. Right now, here are the Bellamy Brothers, and let your love flow. After making no mention of the death of Pan's people, Tone, the heartless bastard, <laughs> bangs on about Frankie Valle and introduces Let Your Love Flow by the Bellamy Brothers. Spawned in Pasco County, Florida in the late 40s, the Bellamy Brothers, David and Homer, formed a country rock band in the late 60s. After moving to Los Angeles in the mid-70s, they hooked up with a roadie for Neil Diamond, who offered them a song that his boss knocked back, Let Your Love Flow. It ended up being their debut single and had been the number one in America the previous month. It's up this week from number 33 to number 28, and because they're not in the country and pants people are dead... We get some mocked-up concert footage. I bet this is Simon's favourite. What is it? What's that? Sorry, it's right up your street. This is right up your street, isn't it? I quite like this. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, let your love Times flow. It's changed. it's in the same vein of beardy white man country soul as something like "Love the One You're With" by Stephen Stills or "Couldn't Get It Right" by Climax Blues Band or even "When You're in Love with a Beautiful Woman" by Doctor Hook. Um, mm. They do look like they're going to hold you at gunpoint in a remote forest and make you squeal like a piggy. And um, the one on the right looks like Eric Idle, I noticed. Um, yes, he does, uh, yes. They're, they're real cowboys, by the way. Um, they've got a 200-acre ranch in Florida where they raise cattle and horses. 
And they now, right, they, they both now look like the old guy, stranger at the end of The Big Lebowski, played by Sam Elliott, who starts chatting to the dude at the bar in the uh, bowling alley and asks the bartender for some of that good stuff, Barilla. That's what they look like. Is this doing anything for you, Taylor, at all? Um, no, the the trouble with this marriage of country music and middle-of-the-road FM rock, it seemed to work when people came from one side or the other into the middle, yeah. right? Like country acts that went for mainstream radio hits or soft rock bands that went country. Sometimes you ended up with a good record, but bands who just appeared already playing that hybrid are almost always terrible. Uh, mm. And the thing about this record is it's almost perfectly generic. It's like it's almost flawlessly generic, like a like a denim egg. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, but I can't I can't get into it. I, also, I wonder what it was that made the lanky one think he was so special that he didn't have to grow any facial hair. Yeah, He's completely clean shaven. What's it? I mean, yeah. I don't know. He's let the side down there, hasn't he? I mean, this to me sounds like a three minute advert for jeans yeah yeah and also the fact that it's that it's like a an american clip like when i was a kid this would have looked like it was being beamed in from the moon right yeah (laughs) smeary standards converted ntsc look to it yeah uh as well as this completely foreign music uh yeah and it just it just leaves me with a slightly queasy feeling yeah they're just in a box aren't they yeah and get 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 next to some cactuses or summer you know show us a bit of america yeah well they're from florida though, aren't they which is it's the south but it's also far enough off to the side that it's a little bit different yeah and they really were they really were brothers weren't they yeah well. yeah yes it's not a, it's not like the walker brothers though. they really were brothers which is funny because you know they look about as similar as chops and cheese they're not there's Nothing. They've actually converged now. If you if you look at photos of them now, they both got grey handlebar moustaches, and and they both live on this ranch, which has got over the gateway, like you know, South Fork in Dallas. Uh, you know, you drive through, and it's got a massive thing in wooden letters, that, like hanging down wooden letters, um, saying Bellamy Brothers Ranch. Um, so yeah, they you know they're really sort of trading off the name. Of their like three hits that they had. <laughs> of course, the um, one of the other ones being when 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 those classic um, country um, double entendres. If I said you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> so the following week, let your love flow moved up eight places to number twenty and would eventually get to number seven. The follow up. Satin Sheets would only get to number 43 in August of this year, but they'd get to number three in September of 1979 with, if I said you had a beautiful body, no fuck off, get away from me now, you dirty bastard. <laughs> in 2008, thanks to that Barclay card advert where that bloke leaves work on a water slide, Let Your Love Flow got back in the charts, peaking at number 21. Oh, imagine them two in satin sheets, man. Ugh. You have to pick a lot of hairs out of those satin sheets afterwards. There it is, that's the big number 28 sound. Now the Bellamy Brothers and Let Your Love Flow. And we're going to go up there right to the number one slot right now on top of the pops. I don't believe it. I think they're there for life. Brotherhood of Man and Saviour. Kisses for me. Though it hurts to go away, it's impossible to stay. 
But there's one thing I must say before I go I love you I love you You know I'll be thinking of you In most everything I do Blackburn makes the doom-laden suggestion that the next song could be number one forever. <laughs> Save All Your Kisses For Me by The Brotherhood of Man. Formed in 1969 by songwriter Tony Hillier, Brotherhood of Man were a rotating collective of session singers who had a number 10 hit with United We Stand and a number 22 hit with Where Are You Going To My Love in 1970. After being dropped by their label in 1972, Hillier settled on a permanent lineup which failed to score a hit in the UK but became popular in Europe, where they toured extensively throughout the mid 70s. In 1976, Hillier decided to try to put the band over in the UK by entering them in the Song for Europe competition with a tune he'd written with the male members of the band, Save All Your Kisses for Me, which beat the band Coco and Cheryl Baker by two points. The single entered the charts as the highest new entry in mid-March of this year, knocked I Love to Love by Tina Charles off the top spot the week before the Eurovision Song Contest, and then it battered the rest of Europe, breaking the record for highest average vote, which still stands today. This is its sixth week at number one. Telly, you can stay out of this because, you know, after all, you're only three. <laughs> Simon, you're, you're the same age as me. Eurovision Song Contest in 1976, did it mean anything to you? Did you feel a swell in your chest no. of pride? No, I didn't. I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. I didn't really get into Eurovision until right. probably about 78. Um, I do remember this being number one, though, and it feeling like it was going to be forever, as Tony Blackburn says. Um, to the extent that, I mean, I don't think I saw this episode of Top the Pops. Apart from anything else, because um, a lot of the time we didn't have a telly, and I'm not sort of getting out the mm. world's smallest violin here, but um, quite often our telly was, it was a rental one from like Radio Rentals yeah. or Red Diffusion or whatever, and it was getting repossessed. If, if we oh, man. Um, but I, I certainly do remember seeing at least one episode where this was number one. And um, yeah, there's, there's, there's something really upsetting about their giant, white bell-bottom trousers and it's the way they're lifting up one knee at a time as if they're letting yeah. out a fart in unison it's like it's like a rectal gas harmony i mean to me that eurovision song contest win was was massively important because you know you know we're eight years old right uh, we missed World War Two. We, well, we, missed, we missed both World Wars and we missed the 1966 World Cup. We're British. We've not won anything. All of a sudden, here come the Brotherhood of Man to, to win something for Britain. Christ. Yeah, yeah, it, that desperate. Flying the flag for that desperate. Uh, the originality of British music with uh, their... Yes. Yeah. With their um, <laughs> completely ingenious lineup of... Uh, two couples um <laughs> if the actual abba in their way are perfect scandinavian archetypes it does make sense that for the cheap shit british knockoff version you should have these <laughs> sausage sandwich eating motherfuckers with their, <laughs> in, their, in their little wood slacks you know shaking sweden <laughs> <laughs> well played the, the the main bloke looks 
so much like he should be in a 70s British sex comedy, don't you think? Like <laughs> what, the running tush? around Martin a, Lee, the one with the tush? Yeah, yeah. running around a, a damp bedroom in purple Y fronts. It's like they might as well have <laughs> they might as well have a John M. East in the group. It's fucking <laughs> horrible. The thing about Martin um, Lee, right? Because this is a good old thing that we do on this show quite often is the guess the age game. I mean, I guess you've you've oh already no. you've already looked into it, right? So I haven't. No, I couldn't right. bring myself to go on. M- Martin Lee, he's he's the crinkly-eyed, avuncular lead singer uh, of, of, yes. of the Brotherhood of Man. Like a, looks like a young eight A's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, right? I'll just come out with it. You know, people listening to this can now have a guess. They can picture him in their minds and think how old he probably was. He was twenty-six, right? No, that that is no, y- yeah. Um, yeah, Mar- oh Martin Lee was 26 God. when this was going on. That is younger than the lead singer of the 1975. That is younger than Taylor Swift. That is the same age as Ed oh, Sheeran, God. Louis Tomlinson Gosh. from One Direction, Eden Hazard, and Antoine Griezmann. Um, so, wow, he had a tough paper round. I, I can't, Everyone I can't had take a tough my paper round. That's shocking. Yeah. Oh, my fucking God, man. <laughs> We're old enough to. To be his dad. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. It's just you look at him and no way is that man 26, but hey, that was no, the 70s. No way. No way. Oh, Who my. do you think was the last of those blokes? I reckon Steve Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, I, I'm, but people who look 40 I, when they were 25 kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the time, I mean, we, you know, uh, talking about ABBA comparisons, he was actually living in sin with Sandra Stevens, the blonde girl. Right. And uh, that was kept really quiet because, uh, apparently because they had loads of young fans and they didn't want to be a, a bad influence or something. Right. Uh, you know, I can't imagine any teenage girls, you know, killing themselves because Martin Lee's been taken. <laughs> To be honest, because they do look—they look like two couples who met on holiday in Mallorca or somewhere, and you know the meet each, the meet up with each other at Bernie Inns and stuff. And pampas grass, pampas grass outside, um, outside the uh, on the patio outside the front window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, th- and there's been, you know, th- th- there's been a bit of wife swapping. You yeah, know, yeah. That's not, Car keys yeah, yeah, in a bowl. But, yeah, but yeah, but, but 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 you know, they're they're past that now, and they they can still be friends. And you know, I've always said it. Martin Lee is would be the ideal next door neighbour of of the pop world. I'd <laughs> love to have him living next door to me because he'd, he'd lend you his he'd lend you his leaf blower, wouldn't he? Yeah, as long as you didn't get on the wrong side of him. Yeah, it might not be pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but there is no there, you're right there's but there's something blandly sleazy about this record and i can't quite put my finger on it because it's i think it's the fact that it's so sexless and hmm. cutesy yeah uh, and they're so sort of you know goody goody is your mind just uh, scrabbles around for it it's like well done i mean surely this is one of the creepiest songs ever written right oh sure but i mean in the way they present themselves they're very uh they're very clean, and it. But it's like you, nothing looks clean in the seventies. No, just a, <laughs> no, it really doesn't. It, it, it's like you're watching the early stages of a, the very early stages of an orgy for, for <laughs> Pontin's blue coat. 
Simon, explain to anybody who doesn't know what 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 you feel is is creepy about this this lovely song. All right. Well, obviously, it's one of the creepiest songs ever written because um, <laughs> it leads you to think that he's got his wife or girlfriend at home and he can't wait to get home and shagger, basically, only to drop the <laughs> does big... It, where does it say that? Uh, well, uh, that's what is implied in the lyrics to me. Like, he just can't... Go, he, on, go on, pick out a lyric where well, you know, he's, that, that Martin's going to give her a scene to when Well, he, he doesn't home. say scene to, but he can't wait to, like, you know, get a load more kisses. Um, while, while he's at work, it's all he can think about. It's all that's on his mind, and he wants to get home to her and all that kind of stuff, right? And then they drop the big reveal at the end. Even though you're only three, it's like, and the, and the music, the music at that point audibly goes ah, almost, you know, and dude, and, you know, it's a bit Terry and June at the end, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And, and and for me, and what what's even better about it is the <clears throat> conclusion to their choreography, where as they do the big reveal, they actually all smile, fold their arms, and step back as if to say, ah, yeah, yeah, ah see. you weren't ex- expecting that on was, one yeah. side. Right, and yeah, you thought it was X, but in fact it's Y, and yeah. we were pointlessly fucking with you, and you drew the logical conclusion from the information you were given. Yes, ah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so and, it's us that are the sick perverts. But listen, right, for me, the fact that he's asking his three-year-old daughter to save her kisses for him is gross enough in itself. I, I get creeped out by families where everything's too touchy-feely and huggy and kissy-kissy between the parents and the kids. There's no that in my family. I tell you, it's brisk handshakes and a polite hello at best. <laughs> and um, that, that's how I that's how I turned in that's how I turned into the well-adjusted adult you see before you today. No, I mean, it gives me the creepy. <laughs> the following week, save all your kisses for me. Dropped to number two, knocked off the top spot by Fernando by ABBA, but it finished the year as the biggest-selling single of 1976. Right. Oh, contemplate that for a moment. Oof. The follow-up, My Sweet Rosalie, only got to number 30. Taylor, explain My Sweet Rosalie. I don't know this one, so I'm all ears here. Well, uh, spoiler alert, um, they did exactly the same thing again. It was the same uh, giving out of insufficient information followed by a big reveal at the end. It's exactly the same trick. You think it's about his girlfriend, but it's actually about a dog. I mean, no uh, one, no one can have trusted anything they said ever again. After no, that. no, <laughs> it's like they just—they're just fucking with you all the time. Hi, oh, we're brotherhood of man. We're playing tonight. Oh, all right, come in. No, we're playing Scrabble. <laughs> uh, Do you reckon, right? They—they uh, they just heard Lola by the Kinks, and they thought, right, well, you know, Ray Davis has done that. Like, is it a man or a woman thing? And they thought, right, well, where can we go after that? Like a three-year-old child and a dog. But they'd score two more number ones in 1977 and 1978 with Angelo and Figaro. However, their chart career petered out by the Aventis, fuck off Simon, and their last (laughs) throw of the dice was to model themselves on Buck's Fizz, renaming themselves BHM and releasing the single Lightning Flash, which only got to number 67 in the summer of 1982. Still going today, though, aren't the Taylor? Yeah, yeah, but they play um, gay clubs. Do and they? It's not because, yeah, but it's not because they they did a load of great high energy records or no. anything like that. It's just as camp, right? So imagine if this was your job that it's like, hey, we're still going because we're so shit. 
and people just turn up to sort of because they think we're funny because we're so crap. This is, I mean, and he's still twenty six years old. No, he's sixty eight now. Which, when you look at him then, you think, well, surely he's got to be nearly eighty by now. But no, good lord. Save all your kisses for me, even though you're only 45. <laughs> yes! Save a kiss is me, the number one sound. What a shame we've run right out of time. Thanks very much for watching. Be back with us next week for another edition of Top of the Pops. See you then. Bye. Finally surrounded by the comely young maidens of 1976, bids us farewell and introduces Can't Help Falling in Love by the Stylistics. Formed in Philadelphia when members of the Monarchs and the Percussions merged in 1968, the Stylistics were signed to Avco Records in 1970, hooked up with producer Tom Bell and notched up a run of chart hits in the US, including the original versions of You Are Everything and Stop, Look, Listen to Your Heart. It wasn't until 1972 when they started to make an impression in the UK when Betcha by Golly Wow got to number 13 in July of this year. But as their appeal waned in America, they went on a run of 11 top 40 hits over here, including a number one with I Can't Give You Anything in the summer of 1975. This song, a cover of the Elvis tune which got to number one for four weeks in the spring of 1962, is the follow-up to Funky Weekend, which got to number 10 in March of this year and it's up this week from number 40 to number 20 Elvis songs you you, you kind of like you covered them at your peril didn't you not many people no. went there yeah and they certainly didn't no. go covering an Elvis song in this way does it work no I mean like like any no it really no, doesn't does like, it like any decent person would I love the stylistics I, I love I love that twanging sitar like guitar thing they do um, I, I love Russell Tompkins Jr's falsetto but this is a piece of crap. It, it does not need to exist, and it's for the best that on this episode yeah. we only get 45 seconds of Yeah, something of an anti-climax, isn't it? I mean, of all the stylistic tracks it could have been, mm. we find ourselves talking about this. It's horrible. It, it just feel it just just feel wrong. It's like the stylistics come on, and we have to spend ten minutes slagging them off. It's like, no, 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 no. Just, just let's just pretend this yeah. never happened. Good. Uh, the following that this is the shortest one ever, isn't it? <laughs> the following week, Can't Help Falling in Love jumped six places to number fourteen and would eventually get to number four. The follow-up I know, I know. What was wrong with nineteen seventy-six people? The follow-up, sixteen bars, got to number seven in September of this year and would be their last top ten hit. So their greatest hits album though, right? Yeah. Sorry. No, no. There, there was there's one there's a um, great hit album called the, called the Best of the Stylistics. I can picture it now. It's got a black sleeve with yellow writing. And then they had a few more hits. So they just brought it out again called The Very Best of the Stylistics. It's the same font and everything. Um, <laughs> with, probably with this song and 16 bars added on the end. 
and you listen to that LP, and it's just fantastic. What you know? What 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 yeah. a band, really? Um, my mild OCD is slightly triggered by the thought of the best of the stylistics being followed by an album called the very best of the stylistics yeah. that has more tracks yeah. in it. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah. But, you know, would you sooner listen to this version or UB40's version? Jesus, I forgot about that. Is, is, is suicide an option? So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with Are You Being Served? where a fire alarm at Greg's Brothers give John Inman and friends plenty of scope for their naughty humour, it says here in the TV listings. And then the Burke special deals with the future of the square peg, the person who doesn't fit in properly in the job that he does. After the news, it's a repeat of the Francesca Annis series A Pin to See the Peep Show and finishes off with a repeat of the omnibus episode about Busby Barclay. BBC Two is shown an episode of Chronicle where a Danish family spend a fortnight living in an Iron Age village, followed by Call My Bluff, a Man Alive report on the treatment of long-term mental patients, the first episode of a new series of Rhoda where she's wondering whether to tell her new husband that she's pregnant, a tribute on Jack Robson who wrote Blade and Racers and finishes the evening with Newsnight. ITV is running a repeat of Man About the House, where George Roper is thinking of splitting the house up into flatlets. The Janet Sussman and Denham Elliott drama series Clayhanger, about the intrigues of the potteries in the 19th century. This week, News at 10 and Drive-In, where Tony Bastable explains the mysteries of transmission and why cars sometimes refuse to start. Meanwhile, Tony Blackburn is on his way to a hotel in Kensington to see Margot. Mm. So, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? For me, literally, probably nothing, because I, I didn't even see the episode, didn't have a telly. Um, yeah. I don't know. Oh. What would be the most... Probably Pan's People, although we wouldn't, we wouldn't have known have it was the last... It's Travis, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Pan's um... People, practically in the nude. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, know, you can see the fannies and everything. That's <laughs> what people would be telling you, Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knowing you hadn't seen it. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a Welsh accent. <laughs> It depends what age I'm meant to be in this playground of the imagination. Well, um, whatever age you want to be, it's, it, it, is, it is a playground after all, Taylor. Yeah, I'd, I think I'd rather be the age where I was fascinated by Pan's people practically in the nude rather than the younger age where Dave Lee Travis being funny would have been the most memorable moment of that Top of the Pops. Yeah. What records are we buying on Saturday, chaps? In in reality, nothing. I was spending my money on Action Men and Panini stickers. But um, if anything, probably Andrea True Connection, more, more, more. Um, I did buy it eventually, just like 20 years later or something. Yeah, with my musical tastes transposed into a child's head. Um, uh, yeah, True, Ross uh, and Knight. I'd like to think I'd be buying um, Rastaman Vibration because, you know, reggae as it actually is. <laughs> as a protest um, against, uh, against you know, yeah. uh, Nicholasism. And what does this episode say about April of 1976? It says that music badly needs a rocket up the arse in a form of punk rock. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it sort <laughs> of does tell us that the charts were, let's say, directionless. And fashion had ground to a halt in the middle of a branch of CNA. Uh, and, yeah, still, as had been the case for a couple of years, it was 
it only seemed to be black Americans who could make good music and get it into the charts on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Disco is uh, is the saving grace of this episode. Yeah, not only in the stuff that we see, but you look at the, the rundown, there's some great disco tracks in that rundown, which gives you some idea of what people were, if not sort of going out and buying in the shops, they were maybe listening to in clubs and you know, enjoying mm. it. It's becoming part of the fabric of British life. And that, dear friends, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do is the usual shit, www.chart-music.co.uk. You can join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast, and you can get involved with us on Twitter, chartmusictotp. Thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Cheers, Al. Rock on. Yay. Thank you ever so much, Simon Price. Uh, you're welcome, even though you're only three. My name's Al Needham, and I am being pissed on by some Australians. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Our heroes also broadcast from a number of unlikely locations. There were a couple of shop windows, an airport lounge, a factory canteen, and a Hartlepool brewery. It was Dave Lee Travis who hopped along there with his faithful companion Edwin to meet Sam Wilson, the head brewer, who blanched visibly when Dave mentioned the word water. That is a nasty name in our industry. It's liquor. What's wrong with water? I like water, and it come in the beer. What you gave me before, I like that beer. And not in our beers. You don't have water in your beer? Definitely not. Well, how does it become liquid? What are you doing if not got water? It, it's already changed and blended by that time. I see. Uh, Will you, Edwin, get back? Can you give him another half of something, please, with, with this stuff in it? Yeah, I think we should throw him in. We should throw him in? Yes. Yeah, go on. Over the side. Hey, what are you doing? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 